and welcome to Model Railroad Hobbyer Podcast. Uh, today got an interesting show for you. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Of course, joining me will be Christopher Palomares and uh, James Lincoln, our East Coast representative. Jim's going to tell us about the Amherst show, what went on there. He spent uh, the weekend there. A lot of cool things happening at that show. Uh, Chris and I are going to talk about uh, the nuances of printing your own custom decals. Had no clue. And then a subject that uh, impacts us all. We get a list of things we got to do on the model railroad hobby side, and we start procrastinating. So how do we get past that? So we just bounce some ideas around. The first segment you're going to hear, we're calling Mongoose. We're talking with Joe D'Elia of Protopower West. He's going to be bringing us up to date on the upcoming Proto uh, meet out in San Bernardino. That's at the end of uh, March. People who know Joe know that his conversation can be spirited, uh, can be colorful. Yeah, colorful. That's a good word. Not vulgar, not profane, but colorful. So uh, there were a couple instances in the conversation where we have inserted the word mongoose in order to protect our Better Home and Garden rating. So appreciate you tuning in, and let's get on with the show. Well, thanks, Paul. I just want to introduce Joe D'Elia to the Mall Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. He is the owner of Proto Power West A-Line, and many people probably know him from the different boxes, detail parts, and intermodal equipment that his company produces. He also hosts the Western Prototype Modelers in San Bernardino, California. Now, Joe, could you tell us more about the Western Prototype Modelers meet? Yeah, I'll give you a little, uh, back into this a little bit and give you a little bit of history. Uh, actually, the WPM was actually started as the Western Prototype Modelers and was founded in 1990 by Pete Solium and Tom Baccarella as the FRRS Southern Regional Meet, which is the, uh, it's a Feather River Rail Society, and this was the Southern Regional Meet. That's the way it actually started off. And because of Pete Solium and Tom Baccarella and several other people, they were heavily oriented WP people and modelers. That's how this uh, this thing actually got, got started way back in the 90s. It was originally uh, oriented to be and endorsed and sponsored by the Feather, Feather River Rail Society. And after several years, uh, Pete sought to diversify the event and open it up instead of just having uh, Western prototype or actually WP models because it was in the beginning, it was basically WP. That was when we had all the railroads around, so people were really picky about. Uh, they were only doing meets for specific railroads. It isn't like today where we do an RPM meet and it's all railroads. Um, so eventually, he decided to to expand the meet, get more people coming to it. Obviously, you had to. Everybody wasn't interested in WP, so he expanded it to all the Western roads, and that's how it kind of morphed into what it is today, which is the Western Prototype Modelers Meet. Um, and sadly, in uh, 2003, at the age of 51, Pete passed away unexpectedly and a uh, great loss to uh, the meet and a lot of people. And myself and, uh, and Tom Baccarella was one of the originals. Uh, I actually went to Pete's wife and asked if we could continue the meet, but in his honor and his, in his name, and she said definitely uh, she would be thrilled to have that happen. So we continued the meet under 
new leadership, if you want to call it that. And uh, that is how it proceeded from then, from about 2004, uh, all the way up to the uh, present time. We did have a little bit of a command change. We had, when uh, we took the meet over, I should say, Tom Baccarella and, and myself took over the meet, and we had a uh, put together kind of a committee of people to, to run the meet. And that was, like I said, back in 2004. And then um, we had a facility in La Habra that we used, which is a city in uh, city in California. Uh, we used to use the uh, a, an old bank that uh, the city had taken over, and used that for many, many, many years. And then the city built a brand new uh, senior citizen center or um, public center. And a beautiful facility, we went into that and used that for many, many years. Um, problem was, as as years went on and cities needed more money, they kept upping the price on the on the space, and it finally got to a point where we just uh, the group couldn't afford it. So, in uh, I think about 2008, I went looking for a new meet, uh, a new meeting place, and uh, it's really hard around the LA area to find a meeting place that isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg. So um happened to run across a gentleman that said that they were they were doing uh, there were some facilities out in the old Santa Fe San Bernardino Depot in Santa in uh, San Bernardino, which is right across from the Santa Fe uh yard, which is now an intermodal yard. And so I went out there and, and luckily they had a museum going in part of the downstairs of the of the original depot. Talked to the gentleman there, and what we ended up doing is using the actually the waiting room of the original depot with all the benches and everything in there, and they'd move the benches outside, and we'd set up our display tables, and that's where we uh, that's where we started putting on the meet, and that continues that continued like I said from 2008 till the current time. Uh, about 2009, we had a change of guard. Uh, there was a committee that was basically working the situation, and I don't know if you people have messed around with committees and putting on things in groups, and committees don't really work because you have no leadership. It's just everybody wants to do certain things, and then it's hard to trying to get together and come up with a consensus. So in 2009, basically, um, the, the uh, ball was handed over to me, and since nine, I've been running the uh, the WPM with Tom Baccarella still around and he's helping out at the meet and uh, another gentleman uh, we have several people uh, Tom Anderson who is originally from the Feather Rail Society he comes down from up north and uh, participates in the meet we have a, a pretty good group of guys that are are still still hang around and uh, uh, come in and, and help out when they can it's just a one day meet we've tried to ask people if they want to have more than a one-day meet, and it seems to be they just uh, want to have the one-day meet. I would like to expand it sometime to a, more of a two- or three-day meet, but that's just more work and more time and everything. So um, basically, that's kind of the way the history has gone, and that's where we are today. The The event, like I said, gets put on in the waiting room, and then there's a small room off to the side that we use to uh, have our clinics, and that room is basically owned and run by Sandbag, which is the San Bernardino 
um, group of cities that uh, basically takes care of the uh, uh, things in the in the outlying areas and the different cities in San Bernardino. So we have to get permission from them to use that room. So, but other than that, I can't think of a better venue. You're in a you're in an antique, basically uh, original Santa Fe Depot. You look out the windows, and it's the it's the main line runs by BNSF and uh, UP, and then beyond that is the intermodal yard. So I don't know how much better you could get. Um, basically, the meat runs. From about uh, eight at eight nine o'clock in the morning till about four or five in the afternoon, we have about three clinics that we have with different varied uh, subject matter, uh, and then we just have a ton of neat models, and we try to encourage people to bring as many models as possible. Um, so we we have a break on the admission. If you bring three or more models, you get a cheaper admission price. Uh, we we have a break for lunch, and then uh, we continue the day. Uh, until, like I said, and then at the end of the day, we have a raffle. We have a lot of great prizes from a lot of the great manufacturers, Exact Rail, Athern, uh, Walther's, BLMA, uh, just a ton of ton of great great prizes. We have, the prize table is always full of neat prizes. Uh, and then we do have a <clears throat> small space. We have some space available for uh, for manufacturers. Um, details West. The, uh, uh, comes uh, BLMA comes uh, like I said exact rail Blaine Hatfield makes the trip from Utah um, we try to get the Athern guys out when we can uh, so it's a uh, it's a good well-rounded meet uh, we have a lot of interesting uh, things that are going on between the manufacturers and the clinics and we try to get but sometimes we'll try to get prototype people uh, people who work for the railroad or we had one time we had Amtrak, somebody from Amtrak come and explain the whole Amtrak situation and how things work at Amtrak. So uh, we try to mix it up quite a bit. But obviously the key of the the meet is the models and the people bringing their models and the, the, the basically sharing of information and models and basically, you know, just Mongoose. all day about modeling and prototype modeling and, and all that type of stuff. So... And also, we we have the uh, the Fremo modelers set up next door in the uh, uh, in the museum, and there is a full blown museum next door to us. So there's not only the uh, WP Embassy, but you've got a great museum that the San Bernardino people have put together. Um, San Bernardino Historical Society has put together, and actually inside that museum, it houses the uh, Santa Fe. Uh, arc, some of the, I don't know if it's all of it, but some of the, a lot of the Santa Fe archives, so the Santa Fe Railroad. So there's just a, it's a neat day to come out, and uh, I, I come early and stay as late as you can because it's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. So, and then if you, if you have time, you can, you know, if you're coming from a distance, I'd stay overnight and go up and hit Cajon Pass and Pepper Street, which is, you know, great for photographing, uh, prototype stuff. That's the old Colton. Now owned by UP, and then you got San Timoteo Canyon. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the area. Just not uh, so. If you're planning on coming from any distance, I'd make a weekend of it and uh, have a great time. Well, um, you you had actually brought up because Paul, you mentioned to me you weren't really familiar with RPM, um, Joe. Would you be interested in kind of sharing generally what what the RPM does and promotes and and, and the reason for the WPM Western Prototype Modelers 
meets and and the things well, to look forward to. Okay, just to, let me. Without really making it, it's a long-winded talk here, but just to go back with a little quick history. We uh, have RPM plenty of time, Joe. We have plenty. Okay, of time. it can be <laughs> long-winded. <laughs> well, just to make a plug for uh, for RPM, uh, we have a website, and the website is railroad prototype modelers dot com and on that website is a lot of great information and has the two meets that I basically run which is WPM and the Naperville meet which is the old sunshine meet. Uh basically RPM uh was not called RPM in the beginning, it was called the Modern Prototype Modelers for those people who don't know that. And it was a group of five of us who put on the first meet back in at one of the NMRA Nationals, and uh, we put on that first meet because a lot of us were NMRA members. We'd go to the meets, NMRA meets, and we'd go to the contest room, and basically the contest room was closed most of the time for judging. So we wanted to see more. We wanted to have more models showing and more people to be able to have access to them. So the group, group of us got together and asked a NMRA if they'd give us some room and they said they would we did we put on the meet basically the first one and uh, that's how the whole thing got actually kicked off and then after that uh, the the five people who actually uh, got the thing started um, I says okay well now what are we going to do you know for the next one and they said ah oh, well we you know, we did this one and and we're we're good with that and, and that's kind of was the extent of it so anyways I took it kind of took the ball and ran with it and said, well, this is neat. This is a neat deal, and we need to do this more. So that's kind of how the thing got started. But getting back to the name, being that those of us that started it were modern prototype modelers, it's kind of like the WPM meet. Uh, originally, it was WP, but if you wanted the meet to, to continue and to be more encompassing and have more people involved, you have to spread things out. So that's where it changed from modern prototype modelers, and I renamed it to RPM, which is actually what it stands for is Revolutions Per Minute. And I thought a lot of people would know what that meant. But So I, I named it RPM, and then, I, then it came out to be Railroad Prototype Modelers. So that's how the thing actually got its name, and now that involved everybody from the steam era all the way up to the to the present day, and that's the same same concept there is trying to get as many people involved and interested in not just having a specific time or or specific railroad. Uh, this was open to everybody, and not only open to trains. It was also because I'm um, very interested in vehicles. Then we opened it up to uh, the vehicles, and so the 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 groups of things that were were available for people to bring models, it wasn't specifically, oh, you could just bring locomotives or you could just bring freight cars. It was basically, we had several main categories. We had the steam, we had the diesel, we had structure, we had vehicle, uh, we had passenger maintenance away. I mean, we had the whole gamut of all the different models that uh, people could bring. And then for many years, we went on to continue to do the RPM meets at the NMRA Nationals because obviously there was a big, uh, a, a large amount of people that would come. The only glitches we had with that was that we had to have our own room in the NMRA contest 
or in the NMRA show because they kept wanting to stick us into the contest room, and I kept telling them, we can't do that because your room is closed more than it's open, and people want to come in and see the models basically 24-7 all the time, or most of the time, you know, the better part of the day. So basically that's how the whole thing got started. At one time, uh, we actually had membership in RPM. I don't know if many people realize this, and we also had a magazine that uh, we put out. Well, obviously, you know, anybody knows running a group uh, or running an organization and having a membership and having models or having a magazine is uh, pretty horrendous, and that was kind of in the heydays of when the, our business was going pretty strong. So, unfortunately, we didn't have the manpower or the finances to kind of put into that to keep the thing really rolling. So, what RPM actually morphed or evolved into is a lot of individual people, and there was a tremendous amount of people in the early days. Um, just, I mean, some of the people that come to mind, Jim Six, and, and geez, there's just hundreds of hundreds of people uh, that were that you know were prototype modelers and and, and got into the RPM movement. Um, so over the years, basically, what has happened is is people have have come up with their own groups and their own events, but basically the way I always look at it is it's it's RPM is like an umbrella today and then it's a it's if you want to call it a movement. Uh and it encompasses everything as far as prototype modeling goes. And then people will put on meets in their in their local areas and they will have a, they could either call they could either call them RPM or they call them whatever they want to call them. They want to call it the Bay Area prototype modelers or they want to call it the St. Louis meet or the Naperville meet or the Cocoa Beach meet or whatever. But uh, the the thing I found out is if you try to get everybody to work under one situation, uh, interestingly enough in the group, which in a lot of other groups, there's a lot of egos involved and there's a lot of personalities involved. So what has happened is people have come up with their own meets. And the other thing, too, is in – because of especially today with travel and everything being uh, such a problem and the cost of, of traveling is such a problem it makes it more sense it makes more sense for people to put on meets in their local area because they don't have to travel they could travel a matter of minutes a matter of hours uh, and have their own meet in their own local area and it's a more of a a group of people who know each other pretty well because they probably see each other fairly often. So that's kind of what things have actually worked into. Uh, RPM has turned into a bunch of RPM meets uh, in, in, in one fashion or another with different names. Uh, so that's kind of the history of uh, how this thing has basically evolved. And um, that's why we have what we have today, really. And it seems to be, as far as I'm concerned, it seems to be working out pretty well. Now, one of the one of the things that I would like to see I don't know if it'll ever happen in my lifetime, but one of the things I would like to see is I would like to see us have a national RPM meet, like the NMRA has a national. Not every year, but maybe once every couple of years or something. When we all of the different collective groups, we possibly talk and decide that we're going to have it and uh, find a facility and put it on. So that's one of the things that I'm kind of uh, would I think would be kind of neat to to do, but. That's uh, that's kind of where it's come from and where it's ended up today. 
Now, uh, Joe, uh, Jim Lincoln here. I always thought that in a way the Naperville slash Lyle meet was sort of kind of the national. Uh, no. No. That I, well, let me put it this way. You're, you're, I'm giving you my opinion. Now, obviously, you know, depends on who you talk to, who, whose opinion you get. Yeah. But I don't, I don't look at it in, obviously my, from my beginnings with RPM, I think I have a, I don't know, I, I think I have a fairly good take of it. And I've talked to, I know a lot of the people, uh, who put on the other meets, so I try to keep in contact with them. On our website, we actually list, uh, the email, or not email, but the, uh, the address, the website addresses of other of other meets. We call it other events because I got to be care. I got to be politically correct, and I can't call it an RPM event because it might offend somebody because they call it something else. So, anyways, we call it events, and they can they people call it whatever event they want or whatever meet they want. But um, so, getting back to your question, or your question was. Um, in my opinion, there is there is no national meet because it only involves uh, people coming, uh, you know, in that area, in, in it, so to speak. And that that meet is probably probably one of the oldest running meets and probably one of the more well known, one of the earliest uh, uh, meets, the RPM meets that started. Uh, and basically, it was started because Martin Lofton, uh, you know, had Sunshine Models, and he used to make his resin kits. And that's basically the reason that thing started was is because he was coming to sell kits. Right. And that was the main reason for it. And it, what it, it evolved into is that every year he'd come to sell his kits, and people would say, "Well, you know, why don't we have some clinics?" And you know, then before you know it, it turns into it turns into this whole big show, you know, with manufacturers and model displays and it it kind of had a you know, it kinda of has a life of its own. And, you know, you drop a seed in and, and you water it and it all of a sudden it just goes ape. So in the end, you know, uh and unfortunately Martin passed away uh here a couple of years ago and I took over the meat. Uh seems to be taking over meats that people die off of. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, but anyway, uh, as long as you're not killing them off, it's not a problem. <laughs> that, well, see, that's I knew somebody'd bring that up, but no. Um, you know, my, I'll, my I'll whole thing—I'll—I'll I'll probably be the next go, to go because I've figured it out, right? <laughs> no, but you haven't—you don't haven't put on a meat, have you? No, I have not. No, so I won't go after you. Um, okay. So and so, anyways. Uh, I, again, I would not say it's the the national uh, because again, I, I tell you, I've been hit a couple of times, you know, not thinking at the time that I was offending anybody, but you know, saying something about our meat or something, and then I got a phone call from somebody I know I won't mention, and he he mentioned he says, well, what do you mean by what you said? And I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, you said such and such, and I went, mongoose. So, you know, we have politically correct, even in the RPM. So I try to be, uh, I try to be, uh, I try to take into consideration, you know, everybody's meets and, and, uh, we, we're, we're careful not to say ours is the biggest because that gets you in trouble. So again, I, I want to, you know, want to be happy with everybody and everybody happy with me as, as well as we can. So, uh, I try to, like I said, I, I had um, at our uh, Naperville meet. I had uh, lunch 
with some of the guys from the uh, uh, from the St. Louis meet. A great group of guys. I, I some of them have. Well, they obviously they come to the Naperville meet. So I, I want to get to know the guys more. I mean, personally, and I want to try to get to their meets. I've been to the Cocoa Beach meet, and I've, uh, I'm trying to get to uh, St. Louis this this year. But uh, I think the better. I think the more I get to their meets and and get to meet them and talk to them, uh, I think it's just better for the for the whole situation. But again, um, there is no. I I feel there is no national. I, I yeah, think we have I, a lot I, of great meets. I think what I I have heard is there is no national, but what some people feel is the national is the Naperville meet because it's the biggest one. Yeah. Well, well okay. In, in, the, in the length of time it's been around, yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, you said it, not me. So that's right. I, I yeah, I'm just I'm just a hangers on that goes to two of them. So yeah. Yeah, I go to Cocoa Beach. I'm going to Cocoa Beach this weekend. Right, and right. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, waking up at three o'clock in the morning to take a plane down to Florida tomorrow. So, um, and <laughs> yeah, Mike, then, I've had, I like I said, I've met Mike, and and he's a great guy. I spent when I went to the meet, I spent a lot of time with him, and we were talking about all kinds of uh, different things. And so, like I said, it's it's nice to be able to go to a meet, meet the guy that puts it on. And then if I want to get on the phone, I want to call him, and I, you know, I have a question about something about a meet or something, I I can do that, and it's a it's a great uh, it's a great deal. I, I like I, I like that a lot to be able to uh, meet somebody and then be able to call them and you know talk about related items and things. So, right. Well, I'd like and to I have point gotten out a, that uh, that uh, the railroad prototype modelers and in particular RPM like meets Cocoa Beach, Naperville, Western Prototype Modelers meet. The, the the emphasis is bringing your models that you're working on, even if they're not complete, whatever it may be, and sharing them with other people and just oh, explain them and what are, whatever condition, whatever research you had to have made, um, some different modeling techniques. It, it, it's really – it's really a fun event, and there's a lot to do. I mean, especially in a day. Oh yeah, a lot going on. I mean, you got clinics going on, you got manufacturers there, you got friends you haven't seen in you know years, um, and trains rolling outside, and then you know there there might be a layout or some modular group there. So it, it's really a lot going on <laughs> for for one of these meets. It's not just like a, a swap meet or, you know. Oh, no, no. And uh, one of the things you – It's everything together, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, one of the things you touched on, which is, is uh, you know, I feel very strongly about, and I, I don't think anybody will disagree, is, is that basically RPM's meets are a, are a big social event in the sense that I remember when I took over the uh, Naperville meet, I had a lot of guys uh, come up to me and basically – get nose to nose with me and say basically you know we don't come here for the manufacturers we don't come here for the clinics we come here to socialize because these are people we haven't seen in a year and and that and you know what that's the thing about at least the neighborville me because i'm obviously i run it so i have to be very aware of what people want what they don't want so on and so forth uh, but there's multifaceted 
things that are going on at, at I think every RPM meet. Some people come for the show, so just the social event of it. Some people are just heavy into the clinics, and and I think everybody is is heavy into the models. But you touched on another important point. One of the things that from the very get go when we started this RPM thing, the thing that we tried to encourage people to to do was to bring unfinished models with photographs and documentation. Uh, because one of the things, uh, a good friend of mine is, uh, the owner of, uh, Canon Company. And one of the things that I always kid Dave about, he'd bring, one, one meet, he'd bring some Santa Fe locomotive that he'd done a full Canon, this is before he owned Canon, uh, full Canon, you know, workup on with the doors and everything, and then the next meet he'd bring it and it was all painted, and I went, Dave, I can't see all the work you did. You just covered it all up. So it's a kind of a kidding thing that I used to kid him about. But that's the great thing about being able to bring, bring unfinished or in-process models so people can see what the heck you're doing and be able to quiz you about it. And how did you do this and what part did you use and, and what decals did you use? and what? Paint? I mean, the whole gamut of everything. And it's the same thing. You know, like uh, going and seeing a finished layout versus a layout that's been, um, in, you know, in stages or, or, you know, or Fremo, building up Fremo modules and seeing them in their beginning stages and seeing them as they as they progress through their whole stages of, of I mean, that's, you know, I really enjoy that end of the thing. Uh, so that that's a that's a critical thing with the with the RPM meets. There's there's such a multifaceted event. Um, that that's what I think. Why I think they've it's gained so much popularity. And one of the things I would like to say, um, you know, since we're doing this podcast, is, is back in the early days when we started all this stuff out. If you'd have told me back then that the industry would be so heavily, uh, if I can call it RPM oriented, I would have told you you're nuts. But what's a, a great feather in all of our caps, all of us RPM people is that the industry finally realized that, uh, you know, prototype modeling is is uh, is very critical and it's where it's at. So, I mean, you've got everybody from from Walters to Bachman to, to obviously to Athern and, and, you know, we've got companies that have sprung, Exact Rail and BLMA and on and on and on, who basically now, uh, and I think to some extent, have gone a little bit overboard with stuff because there's a practical side to manufacturing models and then there's a uh, you know are you building are you manufacturing a museum quality piece or are you manufacturing something that somebody's going to handle and run on a layout so there's a there's a, a very interesting balancing act that goes on with that and that's one of the things that I learned years ago when we built our intermodal cars is um, since I was a runner meaning I I run my equipment I don't just collect it um, it had to be built so it could be handled so that's a in the good and the bad of today is we have just exquisite models uh, that are just detailed down to the nth degree. But if you look at them cross-eyed, stuff falls off of them or stuff gets broken. So it's uh, it's and it's and you got to remember there's 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 us RPM people and then there's kind of the rest of the world and that's why sometimes they don't understand what we're all about because they're not used to the equipment. They don't know how to handle it. Um, you know, I got to be very careful when I go down to the club of what a equipment I take because uh, I don't need the heartache to come back with a bunch of broken stuff. So 
a lot of times that stuff only, you know, a lot of the time the stuff only seeds, you know, home layouts or personal layouts. It doesn't see club layouts because in all practicality, the equipment uh, can't live under that kind of a condition unless you have everybody in the club is, uh, you know, knows how to handle the equipment. So, uh, like I said, again, RPM is, is, uh, is so multifaceted as far as the events and the things that go on, and I think that's why it's uh, the popularity is that it's uh, enjoying today. But, uh, Joe, wouldn't you think, I would tend to think, that as far as the manufacturers are concerned, they, the push towards more prototypical models is, in fact, good business because you satisfy two prototype models have a tendency to, you know, oh, they're not going to buy two or three coal hoppers. They're going to buy 50. And if you give them one that's prototypical, they're going to be happy, and the people who don't really care are going to be happy too because they're not going to care either one way or the other. So you might as well make it right to satisfy both sides, don't you think? Well, let me give you a little bit of my two cents or my insight into that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a part-time job, which I don't really need, but it's, it's, a, it's a great place to be, and I enjoy it. That's why I'm doing it. You know, I, I work at Athern part-time. And we have these discussions quite a bit. And my philosophy about it is, if if I was in the driver's seat, is I would basically, and some of the other manufacturers have done this, I would have two lines of equipment. I would have the double throwdown, everything but the kitchen sink on it, and then I would have a more practical model that mm -hmm. still is very presentable, very prototypical, but it doesn't have all the bells and whistles on it. And as far as what you said earlier about uh, the prototype model is going to buy more, unfortunately, to my experiences, the prototype modelers don't buy a lot of stuff because they're too. Most of them are too nitpicky. If, <laughs> if it's just off slightly, yep. Yeah, uh, yep. they're oh I Jesus! I don't want that piece of junk. You know, it's it's off. You know, it's the window is three centimeters. You know, too small or too big or it's this or that. And one of the things that why I'm so close to all this is because of what I do at Athern is I basically check the models when they come in from from China. I check them for fit and finish. I check them for the colors. Uh, check them. I check them against the artwork for the for the that the artwork is correct. Uh, we, you know, we're looking at we're always looking at prototype. We base everything is based off the prototype photographs. It, you know, as as much as humanly possible. Um, and as a matter of fact, the criteria with Athern is that if it's a Genesis, it has to be prototypically correct. If it's RTR, then it can be uh, what's the term they use today? Yeah, be it a can be bit of a fudgy. Yeah, it, 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 there's a term that they use, not a fooby, but uh, oh. oh, I can't, I can't think of. There's some, several terms that the the, the people use. Um, so uh, to me, in a, in a manufacturing situation, the happy medium would be that you basically have two lines of equipment, and I, a lot of people have mimicked that. Exact Rail, I think, has uh, you know several different lines of equipment. Well, and here's the critical thing. Not only the level of detail, but the price points. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I've had this argument where you know I, I tend to think there should be more should be a balance between, uh, like let's say for example, uh, Genesis and uh, 
than RTR as far as the amount of equipment that comes out. But that's, you know, that's only my opinion. Uh, but for, like, for example, uh, Atlas has the trainman line. And if you look at some of those cars that they've made, uh, I mean, with just some minor work, you know, like putting on a maybe a, a plane roof, roof walk or something. Right. I mean, you can have a stunning, you can have a, a, a really nice model. And aren't we supposed to be, isn't it railroad prototype modelers? Mm-hmm. Aren't we supposed to be modeling and not buying? So you gotta, you got to go back to the roots. We're... Years ago, we were always building stuff. I mean, now you've got, between all of the uh, aftermarket people, you've got uh, more parts than you know what to do with uh, to be able to build models. So it kind of having the, the and I keep using Atherin just for the sake of, because I'm close to it, is the Genesis, in which is in, it's got all the railroad-specific details on it, not much modeling left to do there is maybe weathering it or something like that, or maybe changing the couplers or something. But other than that, uh, and then plus you're talking about now with DCC, you're talking about models that are uh, three, basically $300, and that's with sound and everything. Um, while we're talking about this whole thing, I had an, I, I like to bring up examples to people because I hear a lot of people talk and, and a lot of people uh, – be, uh, they, they gripe about the prices of price of things today, and one of the examples I bring to them, and I'd like to do this more. And this is this is a great situation with this podcast because I don't know how many people will be listening to this. Take for example a project that's near and dear to me is the the DDA 40X that Arthur did. I had a chance to go out and help measure and photograph that, and so kind of went through that whole project and had it. So I'd go from start to finish and all that. And when that model finally came out, we, I saw the test test shots, and then finally the, 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 the production model came out and the painted version and all that. That, again, is just an unbelievable, you know, I don't know how many people are into UP or the big locomotives, but if you ever get a chance to take a look at one of those, the DDs, it is absolutely unbelievable. The, the detail and work that went into that model. I mean, it's got a full cab interior. It's got photo etch walkways, which I don't think many people know that there was there was uh, the, the walkways on those locomotives were see-through. I mean, basically, uh, I think a lot of people maybe thought they were like on most locomotives they were solid, you know, steel diamond plate or whatever tread plate or whatever. But <clears throat> I take I use that as an example. And if you go back and remember that uh, in the brass days when there was, there was brass locomotives that came out, if you took the cost of that brass DD, uh, I think that Overland made them at one time, and you compared it to the price that you're paying today for a, an Atherin Genesis DD, there is absolutely no comparison. You are getting so much more bang for your buck today, even though that locomotive is upwards in the neighborhoods of 400 or some dollars, but you're talking about a completely super detailed, to the nth degree, locomotive, dual motors, dual sound systems that fire up separately. You can't even compare the brass locomotive to the current DD today, 
So I, I, I say to people, you got to go back and you got to use something as a comparison instead of just saying, oh, that's too expensive or, you know, that's too much money. Compared to what? I mean, one of the other examples I bring is what's what's a gallon of gas cost today? And when used to be, you know, 35, 40 cents, 50 cents, or whatever, you know, back in the olden days. Yeah, everything goes up. But you were in the model end of it. You're getting so much more bang for your buck today. Uh, and I just hate to pe- hear people. Whoa, that's a mongoose. Riping about the uh, cost of uh, stuff today. And, and you know what the bottom line is? hate to say this, if you don't like it, you don't have to buy it. So that, that's kind of a little thing that uh, is, kind of gets, uh, gets me wound up and gets me going, and I think a lot of people forget about. So, uh, Well, I'm accused of myself of doing something where I, I thought doing a home-built build would be cheaper than buying ready to run, and I priced out all the detail parts for it, you know, priced out the decoder, the cam motor, the, you know, 30 or 40 different detail parts that need to get added to it, painting, decaling. And it was about uh, $100 or $200 more if I did it myself than if I just got a credit card, put the put the locomotive I wanted to get on there and made payments, <laughs> you know, but uh, – <laughs> I, I think a lot of people kind of choose frugality over everything and kind of that that makes people lose lose sight. It's a labor of love. I mean, we, we do these things, especially in RPM, doing these shows and for the Western prototype modelers. It's like the money's not the object there. We're, we're doing this exactly. because we are really attracted to the equipment that we're modeling that just resonates with the each with whatever the model may be with the with the builder there there's a connection there and we're doing it no we would we would use toothpicks if <laughs> if that was our only resource but we don't have that you know so we, we'll use whatever it takes to accurately represent a, a yeah, and, and I, yeah and i think we're we're in a golden era of 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 modeling today as far as the railroad goes You've got every configuration that you can think of. You can go out and buy something ready to run with sound in it, or you can build it. It's not to say that you have to do one or the other. It's it's whatever. What I always call whatever spins your propeller. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't tell anybody well you need to do this or you need to do that. And goes that kind of goes back to the philosophy that we have with RPM. In the beginning, there was so much confusion or, or misunderstanding about what RPM was all about. They used to call us, uh, you know, rivet counters and nitpickers. What I always used to try to tell people at the, at the meets when I when I could is that uh, this isn't a, a situation. RPM does not dictate what level of detailing or modeling you do. It's totally up to the individual to achieve whatever level he wants to achieve. So that's a big misnomer that people maybe even still today or, or I know for sure did in the olden days that uh, they always thought that uh, you know it, it, it again like I said we were we were river counters and nitpickers now, yeah some of the guys were but I think for the most part uh, people were just building and having fun and, and doing their thing and one of the things that I remember 
so vividly was that when we started doing the RPM meets, um, there, you know, there wasn't a lot of guys that you you knew were were doing models. There was just you know person some personal friends, and you know you would model together. But when we started having the RPM meets and started opening it up to the general public, I was just absolutely shocked at the amount of people that were, I'll use the term, coming out of the closet, that were would were modeling at home but wouldn't come out and uh, display or show their stuff because they thought they were, they were oddballs and they were the only ones around that were doing it. But then when we started opening up the RPM meets and having the displays and everything, uh, there was just an ungodly amount of people who were doing some just stunning modeling. Uh, you know, young guys, old guys, you know, sons and, and you know, fathers and sons. I know a lot of father and son combinations of guys that were just un- doing some unbelievably modeling back in the old days. And I'm sure that, you know, sure that goes on today. So... No, I was just going to say that's a very important point that I like to bring up too. That uh, so many people they 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 have a name, you know, could be RPM, and then they immediately they, in their mind they equate it to to something, and it it could be totally wrong, you know. So I like to clarify that, and I used to do that in the olden days, and I still do that today, you know. In the seventies, where we did not have the abundance of detail part uh details west details associates hadn't really emerged yet and others you know i tried making grab irons you know shaving the the globs of plastic off an atherm blue box was not an issue it was coming up with a good fabricated double uh double bin grab iron to replace it and then you had titchy and people like that all of a sudden came out with lines of phosphor bronze scale size grab irons and you know that propelled me to just start detailing everything and then more contemporary is plano with their etched metal i've uh, taken all of my a-line gundersons and the uh, thrall you know the the five unit thrall and upgraded those with uh, plano and it's just People are amazed at the transformation that simple parts and some sweat equity can bring about. I think it's, you know, the chicken or the egg concept, a little bit of that. And uh, But but really, I'm never going to see 60 again. And I'm really happy that a lot of the locomotive guys are adding all the details so that I just have to go back and put on windshield washers and air deflectors or rearview mirrors. I can handle that. My eyes can handle that. But yeah, I agree with what you were saying. But see, that, and then it gets back to a point you guys brought up about, you know, the, the who's buying what and how and when and why and all that. Well, I, I kind of group it into two major groups. I group it into the people who are into the heavily detailed nth degree, prototype correct, all that. And then I kind of group it into the others. And there's probably a shade of people in between. But but I think there's there's two major distinctive groups, and a lot of it's separated from. I don't really care. You know, one of the groups is I don't really care that it has all that stuff on it because they're just not to that level. Is, it, is that wrong or right? No, it's not wrong or right. It's just that's their preference. It's again, there's, there's no RPM doesn't dictate the level that you model or detail to. Um, so I think that's why it's important for a manufacturer to to take that into consideration and. Because we still we've got you know the details west and the details associates and on and on and all all the companies the A line and all that 
we've still got the ability for people to model and we're still in business and we're selling parts and pieces so there must be a fair amount of people who are still modeling unfortunately not as much as used to um, but still they, they're still modeling and, and microscale still around um, so I think it's I think it's important to, to remember that you have different segments of the hobby and you have to you have to come up with things for both of them. You can come up with an RTR locomotive and you can and even though it may not be railroad specific but still a lot of it is, uh there's still room for you to detail and do stuff. So that's the great thing about it. Uh if you're careful and being that you're working with a painted model, but there's still a fair amount of uh, decorated or undecorated equipment, not as much as there used to be. Uh, as a matter of fact, while we're talking about that, I happened to, uh, when Atherton took over the uh, the rail power line, uh, I, this is many years ago, I happened to buy all of the undecorated uh, rail power shelves that, that that they had available, and I'm and I, I'm selling those today. And, and do I sell millions of them? No, I don't sell millions of them. Hey, Joe, I'll take an SD9 with dynamic <laughs> brakes. <laughs> in stock, in stock. But but there, <laughs> but is there is there room for 20 people like me selling undecorated shells? No. Unfortunately, that's where the hobby has gone. But fortunately, as long as, you know, there are some companies that, that deal in that kind of stuff, then, it, then the, the hobbyist is, uh, the builder is still uh, able to buy and, and do that stuff. Now, periodically... Uh, I know Atherton has come out with undecorated uh, locomotives uh, because a lot of people say, oh, I want undecorated locomotives. The only problem is is when they, they these people say we want undecorated locomotives, the problem is Atherton puts some, comes out with the, the undecorated uh, kit, and consequently the sales are very poor. So what does Atherton say? But looks like we're not going to do undecorated kits again. So it, it's it's a... It's a situation where, you know, it, again, that gets back to my how many people want what. Uh, unfortunately, there's not enough people that want undecorated stuff to be able to, for a manufacturer to offer undecorated equipment. So it's uh, it's a real catch-22, and it's a problem. But uh, that's that's what it is. You know, that's what the, that's what the market is. Uh, that's what the market's all about today. Uh, unfortunately, it's a ready-to-run. Uh, it's a ready-to-run world. So, well, I noticed that. Uh, actually, I was talking to a, a hobby shop owner up in the Central Coast, and he said what really kept him going through some some hard months was the consignment stuff. A lot of the old Atherton kits and you know stuff around ten to twenty dollars that can be quickly and easily assembled. So there, there's there's people out there, quite a few people actually, <laughs> that you know don't really mind a, a lower end model, and it's something that has an upgrade path. Whether it be you know putting on KD couplers and some metal wheels, and potentially a plano roof walk or whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you, you, there's a market there for that. I mean, if it's keeping a hobby shop op open for you know through the hard months. Yeah, that's saying something, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, and you've got to know the demographic that's looking for the consignment sales. And we take in at the uh, store a lot of, uh, just let me use the word Tyco train set 
cars, plastic wheels, some still even with horn and hook. And they will sell out at a dollar or two a piece once it's you know broadcast in our email that we haven't because it goes to the young kids and it goes to the more experienced modelers who just enjoy the challenge of converting that toy set car into a uh, near work of art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a gentleman come in this about a month ago and it was, he said, well, I hate to admit this. He said, but I was given the choice of my trains or her. And, wow. and he, and he said, uh, I negotiated down to some of the trains and still keep her. <laughs> and so he brought this stuff in and, I'm watching uh, one of the other guys unpack it, and it was just pristine, never out of the box yep. stuff. And so I jumped on a a powered because they're hard to find a powered AB set of uh, uh, Protos still had the you know the the shrink wrap around them uh, in UP, and then I found another one back there, and they were like, well. I had searched for un. Go back to your comment of undecorated. It took me 18 months to find undecorated, both powered uh, proto E's in an AB set. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw these two UPs, because I was building a UP train, I went, "Don't even bother setting them on the counter or putting a price tag on them. I will buy those today on the spot because some of this stuff is rare. It doesn't get run that often." Yeah. Well. If you think about it in, in all practicality, and I and I have this conversation with a lot of people too, it happened in, um, a good friend of mine that uh, is, is was a part owner of a hobby shop for many many years, a young guy who I watched quote grow up, uh, very knowledgeable guy now. He's off doing his own thing, and he's got a basically a consignment business, and he's a has the ability to uh, uh, take consignment, and also unfortunately when the older Folks uh, pass away. Um, he gets, you know, the the wife comes in and says, you know, what do I yeah. do with all this junk? Um, and I've seen some of the consignment loads that he's brought in, and the stuff has never seen the light of day. And my point in this is that that and most people probably don't think about this, but you know, I've always wondered myself, and I've been in the business for thirty years. Where they? Okay, when in doubt, mongoose. Does all this stuff go? Well, it goes in people's closets. Exactly. People are there. It's not that I need it. It's that I want it. And it's just, I mean, I, I have the disease. Exactly. Too, and, and, and a lot of us do. And, and and thank God that we do because that's what keeps the hobby alive. So, well, and that's the hierarchy of needs. You yeah. Know, need requires empirical data justification. A want exists totally on its own, you know? Yeah. We just yeah. want it. Yeah. So it's the whole, you know, getting off to a little bit of a jag here, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I have always said, too, is that if you think in, you know, because we're all of the guys, you guys know what I'm going to say here, is that I think that our hobby of model railroading is probably, and without a doubt, one of the most fantastic hobbies there is in the entire world because I don't know any other hobby that's got the scope and the depth that this hobby does. I mean, you can talk about 
all kinds of other hobbies, whether it be RC cars or military models or, you know, whatever you want to talk about. But I don't think anything that I can think of, and maybe you guys can bring something up, that holds a candle to model railroading. Now, when I say model railroading, what I mean is, and, and it's a broader sense, is that we're talking about everything from rail fanning to, uh, you know, the the whole spec, the history uh, what what built the United States was the railroads, and we still have a metal wheel on a metal rail, you know. So, mm-hmm. and 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 people from kids to adults to to older people, I mean, you don't have to go very far to not be able to see a train. And so that's why everybody has this love of trains to a to a point. We we have an obsession for it, but there's others that can stand trackside just to just you know, regular people, and they 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 love to see a train go by. There's something about a train. So, and one of the things that's always been disappointing to me is our hobby has never been presented to the general public in a manner that I think it's it it should have been. It's always been presented as playing with toy trains. Well, it's got a thousand percent more going for it than that, but it just hasn't, for whatever reason, and I don't want to get into the specifics of why it hasn't, but in generalities, it just hasn't been presented to the the public the way it should be, and, and there's much more competition for t- people's time and everything today than there has been in the past, but if, if people really knew the general public really knew what was going on in model railroading. I, we had some people over here the other night for New Year's Eve, and I took them upstairs and showed them my layout, and we started explaining some things to them. And I started talking to them about digital command control, and I put a locomotive on the track and turned on the juice and fired up the sound, and they their eyes just got bigger than saucers, you know. So, and now with you know now with DCC, it, it's even expanded the hobby exponentially. So again. Um, I I still today I'm disappointed that we, as a collective industry, if we want to say that, has has not found a more professional or better way to to tell the general public about the attributes of the hobby, so to speak. You know the scenery and the art and the the electronics and I mean I can go on and on and on, but you can't say that about I can't think of. And you know, too many or any other thing that that has what uh, what our hobby has. So I, I mean, I'm and I'm even though I'm on the downside of of the whole situation because you know, I'm obviously going to get older. I mean, I'll keep doing it as long as I can, you know, stand up. But but there's there's so many people that are that uh, are not enjoying what we're enjoying, and and I'm you know I'm thinking of the future of the hobby and what's going to keep it alive and keep it you know thriving and running for all the manufacturers that uh, we have. Now, look at what's happened to uh, to hobby shops because of uh, one reason or another. So it's, it's, everything is getting more critical as far as you've got to be a lot sharper and uh, uh, you know, brighter and, and on top of things to, to keep, the, keep things going. I mean, if you're involved, you know, one of you guys is involved with a hobby shop, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I've talked to so many hobby shops over a period of time, and the first thing I ask them is, uh, do you have an Internet presence? And a lot of them go, what? So that's why we keep losing so many hobby shops, because they're not up to speed 
with the, the technology and what it takes today to be in the model train business and to uh, have products and sell products. You just can't do it with a store and a in the storefront. You've got to be heavily involved in, uh, in having a website and shopping cart enabled, and uh, that may that means that your store can be open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, so many people, even in today's world of hobby shops, don't un- don't understand that, and unfortunately, that's why they're they're going away. And consequently, that's why it's kind of a catch-22. If we have hobby shops going away, and people are and even if we were to do a super job of telling the world that hobby, you know, model railroading is the greatest thing in the world, where are you going to send these people if you don't have a hobby shop? They are not going to learn and get all they need to off of the Internet. I mean, the Internet's a great place, but you need a one-on-one real person standing somewhere physically talking and showing people, uh, you know, what the hobby's all about. And we have World's Greatest Hobby on tour, and we have a lot of that stuff that's, you know, all the all the big meets that we have, but that's great for a meet. It's put on for two or three days or two days or whatever, and you get a lot of the what I call mom and dad and kids in the stroller coming. Um, the problem is, is once that meet is over, and they're all fired up about model railroading and getting into the hobby, and then where do they go? Well, they have to look long and hard to find a decent hobby shop that will that they can go into that somebody's going to tie stop and take the time to take a beginner and kind of walk him through what you need to buy and what you need to have and so on and so forth. It's a very complicated situation today as far as keeping the hobby alive and, and what we're actually – those of us that are still around or what what the heck we're going to do about it. Well, you know, and it's – our store is fortunate in that we have a lot of room. So a year ago, we started building – a uh, display railroad in the back. It's HO scale. And it's roughly 25 by 20 footprint. And it's a walk-in, walk-around, two distinct main lines. So on the store side where the, you know, what you first see when you walk in the store as you look through it, that's been my focus on the scenery, the track work, and everything there because it gets people's attention. And People will come back and go, well, I could never do that. And I said, well, you could never do what? Because usually every day I'm back there working. It just It's a magnet for, mm-hmm. for people, mm-hmm. be it kids or adults. Well, how did you get those rock walls up? I, could, I just can't carve that. And I said, well, neither can I. Let me show you Grand Central's uh, gems uh, molds. Well, how do you do it? So we do just impromptu uh, tutoring sessions right there. Show them how to cast it in place, whatever. Weathering rail. Well, how do you do that? I could never make mine look like that. Okay, come here. Let me show you. Here's the tools. You know, just making trees out of uh, stranded stranded wire, either top down or bottom up and all this stuff. And you're exactly right. It is a way to draw them in and demystify the process. Uh, the the canyon does look very good, but there are guys out there who do so much better than even I. And but you've got to demystify it and say, look, 
if I cast this rock or if I cast it in place using the Grand Central uh, Gems uh, molds, if I don't like it, I take it down. You know, it's 50 cents worth of hydrocal. We're not doing heart surgery here where an oops means someone dies. This is a model railroad. Yeah, this is all pretend in 1 to 87 uh, scale. Yeah, you, you know, people get it. really intimidated very easily when they think, oh, my gosh, I don't want to mess it up. But, you know, it's either yeah. just a hunk of hydrocal or yeah. like a freight car is just a hunk of plastic, really. You know, They'll look at some of the weathered cars, especially the ones that do in oil, and I go, well, what if I mess it up? I said, well, actually, that car was done three times before I liked it. Mm-hmm. Well, what'd you do? I just took more uh, turpinol or rubbing alcohol, you know, 91%, and I wiped it to what I didn't like, went away, and I redid it. I said, you're not going to hurt the car. It's injected molded plastic. It's not, it doesn't care. I said, so, and you'll learn in the process. So, well, you but can see, you're, sometimes... You're you're making my point, though. You you you've got to have that hobby shop, and you've got to have that one-on-one, hands-on experience. So, you know, you're face to face with the guy, and he's asking your questions, you're explaining how to. But but the, at the rate we're losing hobby shops, how are you going to how are you going to substitute what what that personal situation that you're having with these customers and the other problem that we have today same thing with the rpm events is why we have so many different rpm events all over the country is because of traveling expense people's age so i mean i can go on and on and on about why people won't you know go to certain places uh i a lot of people when when they call up here um i say you know they call up and they ask me about something and i say well don't you who's your local hobby shop and they say, uh, well, yeah, I got a hobby shop, but he's 60 miles away. Well, uh, there again, and then I, I, what I end up doing uh, is, because of that situation, is I will either spend more time on the phone with somebody talking about things that I don't even, I don't even sell here or whatever. I've gotten in discussions about airbrushes and things which we don't even sell airbrushes. But in essence, what I've become is a is a, a guy. Like I owns a hobby shop. We did own a hobby shop for many, many years, so I, I know what I'm talking about. Um, but here I'm trying to help this guy over the phone, and I find that I give a tremendous amount of information out over the phone because people just are lacking for where do I, where do I go, what do I do, how do I find this, so on and so on and so forth. And I try to refer them back to shops, but uh, I mean, even in just in, in the the greater Los Angeles area, I mean, there's very few shops that I would uh, would uh, would recommend people going to because of you know the the selection, the, the knowledge of the people, and and so on and so forth. So it's it's a tremendous problem today. Uh, you know what the answer is is I don't think YouTube videos are the answer. I mean, I think they're very important. I think it's 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 something that's very critical. It's like, for example, you were explaining about your, your your layout that you have in the shop there. I mean, the first thing that pops in my mind is I get a friggin' camera, and as I was building the layout, I would take I would make a series of YouTube videos, and I put it on the I put it on the uh, the website for the uh, for the shop. And if nothing else, people would learn about th- that process. But also, it's an ad for you for the shop that we have all these supplies and if you can come in we can kind of 
hold your hand and show you how this stuff works. So it's this is that connection between the Internet and the hobby shop that is so critical that I don't think a lot of shops are taking advantage of or even realize are using. I have a – I'm not going to mention the name of the shop. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good shop. Uh, but I have, for the longest time, uh, bugged the person uh, that owns the shop about getting more Internet presence and more Internet savvy, and they say, oh, yeah, I don't have time and this and that. And then I ask them, how's business? They go, well, business is okay, but it's not doing that well. Well, I mean, come on. You draw a radius around your shop, and uh, that's, a, that's the extent of the people that are going to come to your shop. Uh, you, if you want to get them beyond that radius, you, you've got to really do, you got to really do some work to get them to to really drive uh, a lot of miles to come to your shop. And you know that's another thing too, because it is near and dear to my heart because we own the shop. A guy, you know how first impressions are. A guy walks into your shop, and what's his what's his what's the customer's impression of your shop? The the look of the shop, what you have in the shop. The, uh, does somebody greet him? Uh, does somebody ask him if they, you know, if he needs any help? You know, the, the same old, the, the same standard stuff. And it's amazing, uh, what kind of service and, uh, you know, supplies people have and they wonder why they're not in business. I mean, they, I, I remember a hobby shop many, many years ago that since it's gone out of business, I, you know, a new one pops up and I always like to go look at it. And I walked into this guy's shop, and yeah, he had some stuff sprinkled around. But behind the counter, he had this gigantic display case. And you know what he had in there? Railroad coffee mugs. And I thought, hmm, that's real good. There's just going to be a ton of people wanting railroad coffee mugs coming into this hobby shop. So, so to me, the guy didn't have a clue of who he was trying to sell to or what he was trying to do or what he was trying to accomplish. And one of the other things I always say to people, they talk about hobby shops, I say, you know, you've got to sit down, you've got to decide what you, you can't be something to everybody. You, I don't feel a hobby shop, I think you have to specialize. You have to decide what you're going to do in some parameters, unless you've got a market, you know, unless you've rented an old supermarket and then you have an unlimited amount of money, you can fill it up with everything that is available and you can have a full staff of people running it, you know, all the time. So a lot of times people that open up hobby shops are very limited fund-wise and space-wise. So you have to make some decisions about what you're going to do. And and specializing, to me, is is the key to to keep yourself uh, going and knowledgeable about – because you can't be knowledgeable – I can't be knowledgeable at every di- every different scale we have. It's impossible. And I've just, that's why I've latched on to HO because it's it's the biggest, it's the largest, you know. And there's so much stuff available, and you know, N is second, but still, uh, I'm not knowledgeable about N. And N is a whole group. You know, I've I've talked to N scalers, and they're a whole different bag of people than the HO people. So I'd have to learn a whole different demographics of of how those people operate, and what they want, and what they don't want, and that I think that goes from for all the different scales. I happen to hang around with a lot of narrow gauge people, and they're a whole different set of people. Now, I will have to say about the narrow gauge people, they're modelers. They're not modelers like, I mean, they're modelers more than the HO people are. And and there's a lot of, there's not a lot of ready-to-run stuff, but there is some ready-to-run stuff, some beautiful, uh, you know, Blackstone stuff, but 
most of those guys are are their models because you know I like I said I I go uh, I go hang around with them and, and go to the different cl- uh, different uh, guys' homes and uh, run on the layouts and uh, those are the guys that still still model heavily so it's it's interesting like I said the uh, the different facets of the hobby and different scales and what goes on in them it's uh, pretty fantastic. When you look at uh, you're on the what L.A. area. No, actually, southern. Uh, we're actually down more towards San Diego. Uh, we're, okay. Uh, we're in uh, we're around Camp Pendleton Marine bases in Oceanside there in our, uh, Oceanside Carlsbad. We're about a half an hour from downtown San Diego. Okay, my mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, you go up to Pasadena and you've got the whistle stop. Uh huh. And you walk in there and there's four or five people all dressed up and you can identify them because they're wearing these polo shirts with the embroidered name on it. And uh, I've never seen so much brass in one place in my life. And so you go in there because he has a wide selection of of all products. Mm -hmm. And then you go to, you know, Bruce Petrarca, who's on uh, staff at uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist, Mr. DCC, he used to own Litchfield Station, which is down in, I think, Avondale, mm-hmm. uh, a suburb of uh, Phoenix. And even though Bruce has sold that out to another gentleman, that whole existence of Litchfield Station is DCC. I know that if I go on his website or if I invest the time to drive down there, because it's about 50 miles one way from me, but he will have it. If, you know, it's, but he has made that commitment. I think the new owner's name is Jack, is that I'm going to have every decoder that Soundtracks puts out in Tsunami, and I'm going to have like 10 deep, and I'm going to have 10 of this speaker and so forth, and LEDs, good grief, surface mounts, 1.4 millimeter, you name it. And, but that's what you know Litchfield Station for now. If you've got electronic needs, he knows what you need, and he's got it in stock. See, that's what I said. He's, he has decided he's specialized. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, you're not and going in there. A, for, you're not you're going in. You're not going in there for G scale stuff or whatever. You know. No, you're going there for electronics. And between Megan at the uh, the front counter that works for him, or the gentleman himself, the owner, you're going to get it, and it's going to be right. And I've never had him not be able to fill an order either on the internet or if I go down there, you know, when I'm stocking up for the jobs I'm doing here. So no, there's the the people at Whistle Stop there in Pasadena and Jack are two examples of, of people who just understand who they are and their role within the modeling uh uh population. Yeah, and they're very successful at it. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to remember too that both of those places that you mentioned, especially the Whistle Stop in Pasadena, because I used to go to the Whistle Stop before the, the you know, the uh, before Fred Hill owned it, um, and Brian, and that was many. God, I can't tell you how many years ago that was. That was way before I was, you know, I was a young teenager, and so that that store has a lot of history, and uh, it, it it has a lot of stuff that has come along with it. I mean, to to immediately. Take a Litchfield or, or, a, or a whistle stop, and immediately to, to go into business today and trying to recreate that, you'd have to have just a ton of money 
to be able to re it, it's taken many many years for the the reputation and the products and everything to get built up to the to the place that uh, that they have today and and you know thank god they're doing they're doing well and they're still in business and uh you know but unfortunately there's a a lot of guys that are through one reason or another are going away and it's uh it's uh, it's unfortunate but People don't realize that, that you can take an average model railroad store uh, and the order of magnitude for what you just referred to, investment, can easily be north of a quarter million dollars. Just in inventory on the shelves, not counting uh, special orders that you're going to do and stuff like that. And, you know, the kind of cash flow requirement that that inventory investment drives, uh, you know, you'd better have a daggone business plan in place because that's a lot of money to lay on the line if you don't know what you're doing. Well, you know, not only the money, uh, but one of the things I don't know if a lot of people have ever thought of, just, you know, hypothetically, if you're sitting around and you say, ah, I'd really like to know how, I'd really like, I could have one up on a hobby shop and I could really do this and I could really do that. Even if you are knowledgeable about what goes on, and, and, and all you got to do is pick up the Walther's catalog and look through the Walther's catalog, and you, you're actually your mind it gets blown right there because of all the different smaller and, and different manufacturers and all the different products they make. Can you imagine if somebody gave you the money? You, you had all the money you wanted, and and you had a space to put it in. But then somebody said, "Okay, now you've got to sit down." And you've got to fill that store. Do you know what yeah. a horrendous job that is? You have to contact either distributors or manufacturers. And then not only, even if you had an idea of maybe what to bring in, how knowledgeable are you about those products that you're bringing in so that when you brought them into the store and a customer came in, you could explain to them what's going on. And plus, that manufacturers are coming out with new things or rerunning things or whatever just just the process of of that alone is is absolutely mind-boggling <laughs> it's just absolutely oh, it mind-boggling so you know just if you just, just because you have the money and you have the space yeah that's an that's an important situation but the rest of it is so so critical uh, of you know what you bring in and how much you bring in and uh, knowing your customers, what, what your customers want, uh, boy, those are that's some rough stuff. That is some. Rough stuff. And well, I also, also being able to service like some of these newer locomotives coming out that are more technologically advanced than any blue box or Tyco locomotive from the '80s. You know, it, it would be rather daunting. You know. Well. To give you an example, and you know, we don't have a shop today, and I I, I want to open one, but I, my wife said if I open up the shop, she's going to kill me. Um, that I hear, oh, I don't know, I don't know, it was last year sometime. Uh, once a year, Soundtracks has a school that they put on, and you can go to if you're a dealer, or whatever. You can you can sign up for the school, and you can go. You go to Durango, Colorado, and you spend like three or four days there, and you have classroom work. And then, because it's in Durango, one of the days you get to ride the Durango and Silverton, which is just mind-boggling. That's an unbelievable situation. But they have, like I said, they have a, a, 
class that you go through, and they explain the whole product line. They take you into the factory. They show you how everything's made. You you meet the owners, um, the employees that work there. Put on the schools. We actually go up to a. a uh, but you, you have that we had the classes on the campus, and it was just an unbelievable weekend. But the main point of what I was trying to bring up is that it is I was inundated with so much information that it was just complete overload. Uh, we want to talk about mapping. We want to talk about we want to talk about equalizers. You know, where there's equalizers built into all. I mean, it, and I could go on and on. DCC is a whole nother animal in itself, and I am just touching the tip of the iceberg as far as the capabilities of DCC. Now, you got to remember, like about two years ago. I wouldn't have anything to do with DCC, but I got my feet wet because the club I'm in, we we have a situation where it was it was wired for regular DC, and then enough guys had the interest that they wanted to run DCC, so they did a very interesting thing. They put in a whole bank of of relays, and they had two power supplies. They had a DCC power supply, and they had a DC power supply. And by flipping a switch, when you flip the switch, the relays would either pick up one or the other. Now, we don't run DCC and DC at the same time. You can only run one or the other because that gets you into real trouble. But other than that, they didn't do any any major changes to the to the wiring of the club or the switches or anything else, and were able to run DCC there. And that's how I really got my feet wet. And since I got my feet wet with it, the potential of, of DCC and what you can do with the locomotives, and and again, the prototypicalness of of what you how you can set the locomotives up to the prototype, and the, with all of the the the, uh, the effect lighting and all that type of thing, just it just gets your juices flowing, you know. So now you got now I got to become more knowledgeable about uh, you know how to set up my decoders and how to fix this and how to do that and, and how to install and but here again, it goes back to my same old thing about how unbelievably fantastic this hobby is. It just, it never ends. It just keeps going on and on. And you can get as heavily involved in it. That's the other great thing about it. You can get as heavily involved in the hobby or as minorly involved in the hobby as you want and still have tons of fun. So it's uh, uh, it's just an unbelievable situation. Uh, and And as far as the DCC thing goes... Is uh, a matter of fact, Atherin has come out with a new situation uh, right now that I was kind of gnawing on them about uh, several years ago. That they have now are starting to come out with their RTR line, and the first locomotive that they it's released right now is an SD45, which is the old rail power shell. And basically, what they've done is they've redesigned the chat the frame that will either accept a Standard Atherin motor or the the Genesis Roco motor. It's not Roco, but it's it's a similar Roco motor. But they've also designed in a speaker box. So you buy this RTR locomotive, and you basically plug and play. You 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 drop in the speaker. There's a mount already for the speaker, and you and you plug in the in the uh, in the module, and you've got an RTR locomotive. It's now it's Full sound enabled, and plus, if you want to upgrade the motor, you can upgrade the motor too. And if you want to go even beyond, you can you can actually put in a cam, you know, one of our 
Sagamis, or not Sagamis, but uh, Mishimas. So that's one of the things that, uh, you know, within the hobby today, and, and what that gets back to is what I talked about earlier, is that initially, uh, you know, a lot of people not, might not be able to afford or get into the Genesis right off the bat, but this is a perfect situation where they can buy an RTR at the price of that, you know, 100 and, and you can buy that RTR and you can basically, uh, you can upgrade it to whatever level you want as you, as the money comes available. And that's what I think is, is, that's the kind of concept that I think it should be used more where you're not saying, okay, you either got to pick a $300 locomotive or you got to pick a $120 locomotive. And, and that's it. I mean, you, and then, and then if you want to do something with the RTR, then you have to start, you know, figuring out how you're going to mount the speaker and all that. Well, this is, this is like a plug and play. I mean, you can, you can upgrade the motor or you can put the sound in it and it's, it's all there. It's already, it's a bolt-in situation. So with that kind of thinking, I think that's uh, I think that's going to be uh, just a fantastic situation. Matter of fact, I'm converting one of the SD45s myself. Uh, bought the parts from Soundtracks and uh, to make the speaker for it that fits right into the box, and uh, it's a plug it's a plug and play uh, a chip. So it's uh, it's it's great. It's fantastic the way that things are going. Very cool. Well, I'm really excited about. WPM kind of bringing it back into that because there's a lot of customization that goes beyond what anybody else has ever thought of before in terms of DCC. It's like you take every aspect of the hobby and you combine, you, you have like a few days where you get to spend, you know, a few hours visiting with them and seeing how they did it. I mean, it, it it's one of the more exciting parts of the year for me because I'm, I get to see friends I haven't seen in a long time and also some of these interesting projects and they're taking them in directions that I never even thought of. You, you ask them how they install DCC in it, you know, they flip it over. Oh, this is what I did. <laughs> you know? So Yeah. And, you know, one of the guys that's, uh, and he'll, I'm sure he'll be there. He's usually there every year. But if anybody decides that they're going to come and they've got some DCC questions or want some DCC work done, uh, Paul Fredriconi from Details West uh, is a very uh, very knowledgeable uh, DCC uh, installer. So, uh, you know, that's another plus that if you come out to WPM, uh, Paul will be there and uh, uh, Dave Hussey from Canon will be there and talk about, uh, you know, model projects and, and he's done a lot of freight cars too they've made some detailed parts for the freight cars and he's done quite a bit of freight car modeling uh but you know there's a lot of great guys that come out to the uh to the meet and again like we said that's uh one of the keynotes of the rpm meets is this situation of uh of bringing your models in, whether they're finished or especially in their the in the building stages and a lot of people have gotten into the into the habit now of uh, bringing photographs and uh, prototype photographs and, and drawings or all kinds of support information of what they've collected to be able to uh, to build a model. And another thing that's going on, just uh, just actually mind blowing. Um, there's a, a whole group of guys, uh, and it's it's all around the country at all the RPM meets and everything. Um, that are doing this unbelievable weathering today that is just absolutely mind-boggling. And then there's guys that are doing the graffiti work, hand graffiti work on the freight cars. 
that stuff is uh matter of fact I, my wife's involved with a I mean a local museum group and I keep bugging her to talk to the curator guy there and say hey you know they're always having these art displays for this or that or whatever's funky stuff and I said why don't why don't you talk to the curator and have us do a, a an art display on model railroading because it isn't it is a friggin art and and some of the stuff that we could bring I think would blow people's minds especially when you have a a picture of a of a real piece of equipment and here's a guy that has actually mimicked that real picture, and you can't you can't tell the difference between the two. I mean, so uh, it's uh, there is so many things going on in the level of uh, learning and detailing, and is is probably as strong today, and and probably even sometimes more advanced because guys are pushing the pushing the envelope on a lot of this stuff. But getting back to this weathering. Uh, Something that I have not had a chance to really enjoy or get into. That's a whole, you know, a whole other facet I'm looking forward to. But, um, but it's just, uh, it's just unbelievable some of the stuff that uh, a lot of the guys are doing. Yeah, I, I think uh, in the Marlboro at Hobbyists this last month, it's Gary Christensen did a really nice leather uh, refrigerator car that shows up. And um, yes, it's a model. It's a section in the magazine that highlights mm-hmm. uh you know outstanding pictures that really reflect an incredible amount of realism and um yeah I, I i i noticed there was a big contrast from weathering in the 90s and 80s to now i mean to now it's oh, like yeah. Yeah. it's a whole new whole new realm and in lieu of hobby shops it's meets like this to really you know, this is where you find the experts that can help you out, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that what I would like to see happen in, at more of the RPM meets, and, and it might be to, to that to that point now, but uh, obviously the, usually after an RPM meet goes on, uh, there's somebody there that is, uh, has taken a lot of photographs and put them up on uh, uh, P-Base or, or, you know, whatever, and... and Put all the uh, photographs of the models, but I would like to see, uh, I would like to see more, uh, you know, YouTube stuff on, uh, on some of the events. Um, you know, pictures are one thing, but when you have the feel of people walking around and, and, uh, maybe, uh, YouTubing some of the, uh, the clinics that are going on, it, uh, you know, could really, really open up the RPM meets and show people really what goes on there. Uh, Interesting situation. Last year's in um, Naperville meet, I decided to invite uh, Charlie Getz, who's the current president of the NMRA, and uh, Charlie has never been to an RPM meet. At least that's what he told me. So this was the first one that he's ever been to, and uh, he was he was pretty amazed at what went on. And I gave him the ability to. Uh, to put on a clinic if he chose, which he did. Um, so, you know, and the, the, his clinics were very well attended, and he talked about a lot of different things. And, you know, we talked about the NMRA and, you know, getting into that whole thing. But uh, from my impression that the NMRA is, is trying to get closer and closer, uh, I don't want to say involved in a sense, but uh, trying to get closer to RPM, which is kind of amazing to me, you know. 
so obviously the uh, NMRA must see um, must see a lot of potential uh, in RPM as far as they're concerned because obviously you know they have an older group and they're losing a lot of guys and they want to attract new people and uh, between my feeling about it is is uh, they're not changing fast enough to attract enough people. So they they need a new uh, they need a new dog and pony show to put on to uh, to get more people involved, and especially uh, you know a younger crowd because uh, I think uh, I think RPM has tended to be uh, getting more of a younger crowd, you know, interested in in the hobby and what's going on, and because it's it's more of a what I think of when I look at it, it's more of a Kind of a professional, if you want to call it that, level of uh, of getting people involved in something. Um, it's not playing with trains. It's actually, you know, modeling and getting interested in the prototype and doing research and and you know, really getting into it. And I think a lot of people who are more uh, a little bit more sophisticated and want to get into things with a little bit more depth, because you know, society has. Through, through the internet and electronics, people are are so much more knowledgeable about things. Is uh, you know the old adage of playing with trains just doesn't cut it anymore. So you got to have a, a better uh, perspective for people to to get interested in something. And 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 if it's more you know more professional, so to speak, um, I think you're going to attract more people. I, I know that's the feeling I've gotten. Since I've taken over the Naperville meet, that you, you, I've gotten to know a lot of the people that are coming to the meets, and uh, they're a professional group. You know, they're, they're uh, engineers and doctors, and, and, and not everybody, but uh, but and they have a real keen interest in in uh, doing research and in modeling and all that type of thing. So it's it's a it's kind of something that's a, kind of a neat thing to see evolving, and uh, and I think it does. Definitely attracts uh, the younger, the younger people because it really has something for them to, uh, you know, to get involved with. And I, and I, I agree with you very much in that you know model railroading holds something for everybody. Mm-hmm. If there's something that you're interested. If you're interested in computers, you can do that. If you're yep. interested in building scenery, you can do that. If you're interested in doing anything, you can do that. Um. You know, there are some magnificent modelers, you know, in the, um, I forget the, I, I forget what it is, the International Modeler. IPMS, I think. IPMS. Yeah. Magnificent modelers, but when they're done with it, what do they do? Well, they just just play it for a little while and then that's it. You know, here you build the same type of model, but it moves. Yep. And then you can actually play... What is essentially a role-playing game? It's a dynamic role-playing game when you operate a large model railroad. Anyway, you know you're you're taking the you're taking the place of a dispatcher or an engineer or a conductor or an operator or whatever. You know, so that you know people that you know they look at these war games and things like that in very much same type of thing except more dynamic. 
can be more dynamic. Well, see, and, and you brought up a, gr- a great point because that's one of the things that uh, I didn't actually get into because, like I said, we don't have enough time to talk about all the great things that are going on in, in the hobby. Touch on a, on a point that's kind of near and dear to my heart, too, is that all these things, that it, because the hobby is so multifaceted, you get to a point where they're either at a club a club layout or at your own home layout, and there is so much information uh, about... Uh, dispatching and operating, and there's so many uh, uh, programs today, rail op, and, uh, you know, I can go on and on and on about all the different programs there are about car card systems and stuff like that. And, and that just that just goes to the point of that this hobby has no end to it and it has no, it has no top and it has no bottom. It's just absolutely wherever you want to go, to whatever level you want to go, all you got to do is say, I want that. And it's now it may be not that easy to find out about it, but there's enough information out there, either it be a local hobby shop or be at the Internet or whatever it happens to be. You know, with a little bit of work, you can you can find out whatever you need to find out. And somebody's already had that experience. And there's 20 guys that have had the experience, and they've all had a different experience with the same subject. And you have... All of this information that you can you can uh, you can go to, and then you can de- again getting back to that same old thing. You can decide whatever level you want to be involved in it, and how crazy you want to get with it, or how not crazy you want to get with it. So, um, like I said again, it's it's um, we do the same thing at the club. We uh, when they converted to DCC, and I happen to run with a group of guys that are a little bit more on the serious side, and uh, we got into the rail up. Operation and it's a lot of work to set, you know, because it's a big club. And I think they, the guys bring like bring 400 freight cars, but they've all got to be spotted in different, you know, different sightings and different industries. And then you run the system. But man, I'm telling you, you know, the one of the experiences that that, that I think is neat for me, anyways, personally, whether it's a club layout or, or a personal layout, if I go over there to operate for a day, and I don't know how many of you guys have had the same experience, but <clears throat> once I go down there. And I walk into that building, and I start running the trains or operating the trains. It's like the rest of the world is gone. I am completely involved and immersed in that situation of, of, of running these trains and operating them and everything. And it's I, it's one of the greatest <laughs> one of the greatest feelings I, I you know I have that to be able to get that much enjoyment out of a hobby, you know. Um, so it's it's a, it's a really neat situation. Absolutely. But we need to circle back to the whole point of this podcast, which was your meet that's coming up. Uh, so when is it again okay. and where is it? Okay, it's uh, March the 29th, which is Saturday, 2014. It's in San Bernardino, California. It's at the uh, the old Santa Fe Depot in San Bernardino, right track side next to the main line. Um, he, all the information that you want to know, ever want to know about it, is on our website, railroadprototypemodelers.com. And there's also a phone number, my contact information, phone number, P.O. box, and address. So if you have any questions, uh, an email address, you can email me or call me or whatever. And uh, it'll be here. It'll be here before you know it. So uh, again, March the 29th, which is a Saturday, and it's from uh, about eight o'clock in the morning till about four o'clock in the uh, in the afternoon. 
You going to guarantee uh, really good uh, California weather? Absolutely, and if and if it and if it's all indoors, anyways. <laughs> okay. And you can and, heat, and if it's and bad weather, works. you can take MetroLink and avoid all the headaches of going on the freeway. And exactly. Take the MetroLink from LA Union Station or Fullerton or wherever, and wind up over in San Bernardino. Can I pick it up there at uh, the Del Mar station in Pasadena? It's a train to a train. How about that for a concept? Yeah, a train to a train. Yeah, there's a there, if I'm not mistaken, there's a link on there's a there's a uh, MetroLink link on the uh, website that you can click and get the uh, schedules. So, all right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Real eye opener. Plus, it encompassed a lot more than uh, just the uh, the meat. This is a good conversation. Yeah, well, that's like I said. That's why this just one thing leads to another, and it's it's so uh, it's everything's so interlocking. You know, it, it's not just a, you just can't compartment. You know, just put it in a can and that's it. It's it's like I said. That's what that's what makes the hobby so great. It's uh, it's just all over the place. It's uh, there's so many neat things to to be able to enjoy with it. So and you know that's one of the reasons why I you know personally why. I, and the time and effort to put this thing on is uh, because I obviously I enjoy I enjoy putting it on I enjoy seeing the models and you know it's it's all about having fun and and uh, and meeting people and people you never you know you never met before and and seeing new models that uh, you never saw before uh, so it's just a great experience I, I hope that uh, as many people come can come out as uh, possible and I think you're going to have a, a great time. Looky duck sounds good to me. I know Mike Rose always spoke very highly. He enjoys that meet a lot. It just he doesn't yeah, have the time. Yeah, I know to go out Mike's anymore. a great guy. I, I know Mike. Yeah, I wish we could see him more often, but I know he gets uh, he gets busy with work. So, well, maybe one well, day we can get can... you come out too, Jim. I, you know what? I would love to. I, I've only been to California one time. I actually went in and out. I took Amtrak all the way out, and I went. And I hopped on the train at San Bernardino Station. As a matter of fact, I spent seven days. My seven days in California were spent rail fanning to Hatchapi. Didn't go anywhere else. Okay. So. <laughs> well, San Bernardino's, you know, we got the uh, we got the home pass right up the road, right up the road. So and there's a lot of stuff going on right in that area. Like I said before, with with the home pass, you've got San Mateo Canyon, you've got uh, Pepper Street, which is a uh, a great rail fan sp- uh, spot for shooting equipment. There's a GATX facility right there at uh, Pepper Street. Um, so Un- unfortunately, a- unfortunately for me, on this coast, you're competing with two things that, that, that are both in March, not necessarily the same weekend. But the O-Scale meet in Chicago, which I am interested in going to, as well as the RPM meet in um, Valley Forge. So... You know, there's a lot of things. Well, you going know, one on. year you go to one, one year to go, you go there, and then the other year you come to, you know, you got to do it at least once. Well, I know. Well, you see, Valley Forge <laughs> is only every every other year, so I could do Valley oh, Forge okay. this year and then WPN next year. The problem is right. it's only a one day show. It's kind of hard for yeah. me to trundle myself all the way out there for a one day show. It's well, but you got to remember now. It's you. You may come out for the show for one day, but there's a lot more stuff going on here that you can you can do to take up a weekend if you're gonna you know if you're gonna make the trek. Well, that's that may be true. The only problem is I work for the railroad. The vacation situation is I get two weeks, 
Yeah, the next, yeah. I get two weeks for the next, like, five years. Right. And then one of the weeks is spent on Cocoa Beach. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I go to Disney World. So I hop on a plane tomorrow morning. I go down to Disney World, spend two or three days in Disney World. Then I go to – there's a couple of op sessions before Cocoa Beach. That I go to uh, John Wilkes and Tom Wilson. I'll go to their op session on Thursday. Then I go to Cocoa Beach and then back to Disney and then home. So that's yeah. one week of vacation. And then I have other things going on. Like I'll take one of I can split the other week up and I'll spend one of the days going to Collinsville in Connecticut and then various other things throughout the year. So probably well, definitely out. isn't. Definitely isn't enough time in <clears throat> in the day to do all the things that you want to do. So, yeah. But it I sounds think. like you're you're get, you're getting to quite a bit of stuff. So that's see. And then here again, that's why I think this whole thing is morphed into RPM is morphed into all these meets around the country. So it gives you the ability to do exactly what you're doing. I mean, if we only had one meet, if we only had Naperville, well, then you know what what exposure could there be? But now we've got Cocoa Beach, we've got St. Louis, we've got you know, Valley Forge. I mean, you name it. We've got meets. Uh, we've got meets up in the Bay Area. Uh, we've got meets all over the place. So that's the great thing about the way the whole RPM thing is expanded. And thankfully to all the guys uh, who do the hard work and uh, put these meets on. So and then everybody yeah. that comes and has a has a great time. Absolutely. Now, if anybody if anybody hasn't gone to one, they should go to one. Find the one exactly. that's closest. At Find least the one, one. closest. Yeah. Yep. Go to one. And and, and here's another thing that you can go. I'll go one step beyond that because uh, I've gotten a fair amount of calls. But uh, go to an RPM meet, and if you've got enough interest in it, t- usually the guy that puts on the meet or, or myself or whatever, um, you can go home and you can put your own little RPM meet together. I mean, oh. you could have five guys. Five guys is an RPM meet. It's it's two guys is an RPM meet. So go back to your local town, and, I'm, and you must have a group of cadre of guys that you hang with or model with or whatever. Pick a weekend and find a place. And I mean, we used to start off in, in senior citizen trailer parks, you know, rec rooms. And, I mean, it doesn't take much room when you're starting off. And put your own little meet together every once in a blue moon, and you have a great time. Well, you see what you up some food and... And, you know, and yeah. that's precisely what Norm Wolf did. I mean, if you know Norm, I don't know if you do know Norm Wolf, but he did the uh, Mid-Atlantic, the Mid-Atlantic RPM uh-huh. in September because he said there was a hole. You know, you had Savannah, and then you had uh, you had yeah. Valley Forge, and there was a hole in Virginia. There wasn't one. He put one on. It was extremely yeah. – it was a, you know, two-day meet. It was 70, 70 people. Yeah. Yeah, he, he had yeah. – he had overflow. He could only take 70 people, and he had more than 70 people that wanted to come. So, well, that's a you know, good he, problem to have. Yeah. You know, now he's, <laughs> he's going to be doing it again in, I guess, Williamsburg, I believe it is. So, you know, there's plenty of people that, have, that are putting on meets or have put on meets that would be more than happy to, to help different guys uh, with some information uh, for, you know, for putting on their meets. I know I would be happy to. To talk to anybody that would want to put on a meet, and then uh, you know, take my two cents, and then use whatever you want, and uh, do it however you want to do it. But that's uh, that's something that's a very doable situation. Paul, there's going to be just a lot of stuff happening. I can tell already over what that means. So, 
by the by the way, just let me throw this in as a, as a closing thing: is uh, Mr. Paul Maris is is going to be joining me and helping me put on the uh, the WPM meet. Uh, I don't know if he's he knows what he's getting his himself into, but he's he volunteered. So we're and uh, maybe someday he'll the uh, younger guy will take over from the older guy. Uh, so we're we're gonna we're gonna see if we can get that maybe to happen. But you know. Somebody said to me, yeah, you need some new blood in that meat. And I thought, okay. By golly, Chris is nothing if not new blood. That's right. <laughs> I'm old That's blood right. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a relative term, buddy. Yeah. I think, I think the rites of passage have been set in place for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's called put your money where your mouth is. There you go. <laughs> All right, Joe. Get up. <laughs> And, and now yeah, that we and now we're, that we're making this public, he can't back out of it. I enjoyed uh, talking with you guys and being able to uh, kind of put the word out about just what goes on with RPM and, and talking about the hobby. And uh, it's, it's something I really enjoy because I think more people need, need to get involved in, in, in conversations and sharing information and sharing different ideas and, uh, you know, moving forward with this whole thing. Um, so I, I really enjoyed the the whole get together, and I hope people that uh, eventually listen to it will get something out of it and come to an RPM meet somewhere. Okay. Well, we sure appreciate your time. I know I learned a lot about it, and I am making plans to be there. Wonderful. Wonderful. Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Okay, so Jim Lincoln's on with me. Jim just had an exciting weekend at the Amherst Show, uh, representing the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast, as Chris and I were slackers, as Jim will tell you, and didn't bother to show up. So, Jim, appreciate you being there. Tell us about the show. Uh, okay. Yeah, I talked to uh, – actually, one of the first people I was able to talk to was uh, Joe Fugate, and he did comment on where the other two slackers. But, you know, uh... <laughs> no, he didn't say that. That was my – addition to the podcast. <laughs> Your paraphrase, huh? My par- yeah, my paraphrase. <laughs> uh, yeah, he did comment that he, he really likes the dynamic that we have, you know, so that's that's good. It's always good, it's always good when your boss uh, <laughs> likes what you're doing. what you're doing, yes. yes. Um, and uh, it was the normal huge get-together that it, that it always is. It's five acres of model trains under four roofs so and it's the largest train show in the united states footprint wise i don't know if it's the largest one people wise they normally get up they'll get twenty two thousand individual not including vendors twenty two thousand individuals buying tickets and it didn't seem as heavy this year uh that's just my opinion seemed to be fewer slightly fewer vendors didn't seem to be as many people now that may have been because i started in a building where most people don't start so i was kind of flowing against traffic well how was the was the weather a factor uh possibly it did snow 
so that, the, you know, people with the understanding that it was going to snow may have said, nah, we ain't going. Although, you know, if you've heard Scotty Mason's podcast about, you know, you always get a disease. It's, you know, it's like, you know, the Springfield flu you always seem to get because people will move heaven and earth and they'll be on their deathbed and show up at this show. And it didn't seem to be like that. Well, I mean, there were a lot of people there. Do not get me wrong. It just it just didn't seem to be the mosh pit that it normally is. It, it's normally very hard to even move around uh, at times, uh, particularly in the Better Living Center, which is the main building. It's not the biggest building, but it's the main building. Lots of great layouts, uh, gobs and gobs of modular layouts and, you know, everything from FN3 through Zscale. There was a, I posted pictures on the Model Rail Radio website. Uh, Facebook page of a uh, uh, as a Z scale layout in a briefcase, all the way up to this this G scale thing with an honest to goodness G scale Schnabel car. Good grief! Yes, it was like oh my god, that's huge. How big was that? <laughs> How big was it? It ooh, it was between six and eight feet long. <laughs> you know, with like it's, and it was like a centipede. It's just so many wheels. It was just like, man, that's cool. Was it scratch built? I have no idea. I I didn't ask him. I just saw the layout. I mean, I saw the thing going around. I told the guy it was cool and snapped a quick picture, and moved along. So I, you know, me, I, I almost did not go this year. But a lot of people that I know make a special trip and it's a, it's a chance to go meet friends and hang out and you normally will get a good deal on something so uh and i did get a good deal on several things so that's normally what you go for two totally different points of view from what i went was going for last year to what i was going for this year but uh it, i you know last year i was looking around for n scale rail box box cars to use on the chocolate project and this year i was looking for o scale Tank cars, and I found them. So I didn't know you did O scale. I do Proto Forty Eight. Okay. So that was what I was doing before I did the N scale, the the the, the chocolate. Uh, well, I did I did H O, and then I said ah, I'm going to get out of H O. I'm just going to have this little N scale thing, and I started building an N scale railroad, and then I started doing Craftsman kits. And then I went to the Craftsman Structure Show in 2009, and I said, wow, there's all these cool HO scale ones. I'm going to go move back to HO scale. So I was in HO scale for a little while. I uh, listened to a particular podcast and was convinced I should change to Proto 48. It's all Trevor Marshall's fault. I was doing that for a while. I had a catastrophic failure that's been talked about in, in other podcasts. but And then that kind of blew, took the wind out of my sails. Life happened. Then I started in on this chocolate project and then I did some th some 3D modeling stuff for Mike Rose that I had promised to do for him uh and we have a product that's going to be coming out um uh, that uh, from his available on his website shortly actually it's available now and then that kind of got my juices flowing for doing the 3D modeling I redid a bunch of files that had been lost in a computer drive crash 
Uh, I redid those files for Proto 48, and I said, oh, man, I can do this now, and I can do this now, and and I did a bunch of stuff, and it's kind of got the juices flowing. Because kind of Proto 48 scratches the model routing itch better for me than N-Scale does, if that makes any sense. Everybody has their thing that scratches the itch that, and, you know, you, you may try other things, but it doesn't really scratch the itch, and you may, and you move on to something else, and so. Okay. So did you go to any of the, any of the clinics at the show? No. The, the clinics there are, I, 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 I kinda, there was one I wanted to get to, but by the time, I, ha- I had a meeting that I had to go to at 3. It was at 2.30, and it was on other ends of the planet. I mean, this is, remember, this is five acres worth of buildings. Yeah, and, you know, so the meeting I had was like two acres away from the, the clinic I wanted to go to, and I couldn't make the two things. I You know, I showed up like right at the end of the I wanted to see the clinic on geodesic foam, how to do the geodesic foam from Bragdon. And I didn't get a chance to see that. But uh, the clinics there aren't per se like a clinic. You know, you think of it going to a, a railroad prototype model. You know, it's not in a room anywhere. It's kind of they have bleachers set up in different areas in different buildings. Yes. And so, like, um, oh, Miles Hale. My, actually, Miles Hale was with Barry helping with the uh, – a tray master video, and his wife was doing a clinic on how to build a plastic structure, I believe, in the Mallory building, and I kind of caught a little piece of that, uh, but not very much. It was, ba- you know, basic. They had kids. They had older people. They had everybody in the world. They gave them a, you know, a plastic kit to, you know, some 10X7R and, you know, put this Probably, I'm guessing it was a uh, Walther's cornerstone type kit, and just showing them how to build a basic kit, which was good. I mean, because you had all ages, you know, male and female in there, and uh, lots of great, you know, I, you know, from what I've said, from what I've heard, other shows have overall higher quality of modular layouts. Um, okay. The, the, the spring. How so? Give me a distinguishing uh, characteristic there. Just the mo- you know the level of modeling is really really high at some shows. From what I'm heard, I, I mean I don't really go to many other train shows other than this other and then in the Northeast. I've never been to Train Fest. I've heard Train Fest has some great modular layouts and things. Um, now this one, there are. A bunch of they had a great uh, Fremo group uh, in the Mallory building. They had a couple others that were very very good. You know there are there are ones there are groups that have modules that are very good, if that makes any sense. Rather than a group of modules that are very good. Okay. If that you know makes any sense at all. Uh, and so you have individual stars. Yeah, you have you have individual stars. Whereas I guess in some other venues in other place parts of the country, you have a groups of stars. Yeah. You know? um, and there were some very fine modules. Actually, one of the ones that caught my eye the most it was a really neat uh, steel mill 
complex over, I want to say, two or three modules. The thing that, I mean, what first caught my eye was, oh, wow, steel mold, this is pretty cool. The second thing that really caught my attention and, and grabbed a couple of photos was the person running the, the switching area was probably eight or nine years old. Eight or nine years old, and he was running the engine really slow, you know, prototype speeds, moving it through the yard and everything, not the normal, oh, let's race it around nine million miles an hour. Because there was some of that, you know, that there was, you know, places where, you know, the guys with the modular railroads had their kids inside with them, and they were like, oh, you know, let's put the ON30 on here too, and oh, we'll run it a million miles an hour, and it's like, okay, let's not do that. Uh, but this way he was very, you know, very in, in the picture, you can tell he's very serious, very into what he's doing. And it's like, uh, OK, the hobby, the hobby's fine. <laughs> as long as you have kids like that, we're good. So, um, you know, and, you know, lots of, you know, gray haired old buggers and lots of kids and lots of parents with kids. And, you know, so it's a great mix. You know, so the there's a rather large O-scale railroad that wasn't there, either there, either that or it wasn't there to the extent that it has been in the past. I think all the modules weren't there. But then again, there was a very large G-scale or number one scale, had a working bascule bridge. Oh, sweet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Got a picture of that. Yeah, huge. Uh, uh, there was, there was one of these, you know, prefab, um, uh, uh, benchwork makers. It, well, it wasn't Seavers. I don't remember the name of the company, which is kind of unfortunate because, and he had a working elevator. And when I say elevator, it was a lift out portion, but it was an elevator. So it, it lifted up on tracks you know, sliding tracks for draw tracks type of thing. It lifted straight up in the air so that you could pass under it. You know, it was like six feet tall, and then it would drop right back down into position. And you run, and he was running trains back and forth. Oh, yeah, it was pretty cool. I took a video of that. That was, I was like, yeah, that's cool. That's a unique feature. I can say I've never seen something like that. Yeah, I, you know, not to that extent where it's like perfectly drops back into place every single time. You know, it's like no, no joiner tracks, obviously. You know, just you know, just up and down. It's like, well, that's pretty cool. I'm still going to build my own benchwork, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, but you know, you had Athern. Um, and the neat thing about the the Springfield show is many, many times some of the larger manufacturers will um, announce make you know new announcements. Now, what is it that you're yes. what is it that you're clicking? A pen. Oh, there's some. Noise going on outside, which I'll let it out of my track. Uh-huh. Because just before I called you, uh-huh. I spilled a new bottle of Floquil. Oh, great. On the desk. Good time. And I thought it was poly S. And so the only way to clean it up was xylene, which is diosol. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> I had to open up the window here in the office and some of the around the house to get airflow otherwise my brain would be dying (laughs) 
So, but it's on and, my track, so it'll be edited and, out. And there would be a difference how? Uh, probably just uh, faster response time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you knew that had to be coming. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's I like the old, the old WRK, WKRP uh, in Cincinnati. Do you remember the episode when he was on, on the air with the, the police officer drinking? Yeah. No. Yeah, there was there was one episode, and the um, you know the guy with the sunglasses, the cool one, I forget what his name was, uh, Johnny Fever. Johnny Fever, and he they had a police officer on with him, and you know the whole point of it was you know to show how your driving is impaired, your your reaction is impaired when you drink. Yeah, and so he had a timer, and he had to have his hand on one button. <laughs> He had his hand on one button, and he had to take his hand off and put it on the other button. And it, there's a timer to see how long that took. And in, in, the, in the very beginning, the guy, you know, he, he's talking to him, and he's like, okay, go. And he's like, what? Oh, click. And he's like, so you have the response time of someone who's had four mod vodka martinis. This is with yeah. nothing. And the more and the more he drank, because he was supposed to, t he was supposed to have a glass of like whiskey every every half hour or something like that, or yeah. whatever it was he drank. The more he drank, the faster his response time got. <laughs> so, like the end, the end of it was at the end of it, the, the cops like says, "Okay, take the drink," and he's like, "Okay, go," and he's like, "Bang!" Like like a half a second, he's like, "That's impossible." Take another drink. Yeah, Take but... another drink. And he's like, but I'm not supposed to drink for a half hour. Drink. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Howard Hessman, I think, was the actor that played yeah. uh, Johnny Fever. Yeah. Okay. Well, I shut the window, so. No, well, no. The, uh... I just could hear a clicking, and it sounded like you were clicking a pen. That's all. That's... Oh, well, the uh, guys across the street are putting in a paver brick sidewalk, so we may have really? been hearing the... Uh, wheelbarrow being loaded. I, but I closed the window. Oh, well, I don't want you, die, you know, keeling over and dying on me. I mean, that would be pr slightly problematic. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Uh, who'd, who would feed the dog tonight? That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> they would certainly object. Uh -huh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, so uh, for instance, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, you know, the manufacturers, like for instance, Atherin, does yes. does two announcements during the year, which is one is at the National Train Show, and they normally save one for the Springfield Show. It is that big. So the comment's been made. It says, the Springfield is the largest show that doesn't move. You can't really say much about the, you know, you can't say the same thing about the National Train Show because it's never in the same place two times. So um, it, it's it's a different animal. But uh, And when I've been to a National Train Show, it's, not the same, it, you know. It it was in a big building, but it's not as big. And however, that being said, uh, if people were saying there were seventy five thousand people at the National Train Show in Atlanta, that totally blows away any total from Springfield, as big as it is. I, you know that that does, that amazed me when I heard those numbers. But um, so Atherin, uh, I did meet a couple of the, the folks from Atherin and. Uh, uh, it's like, oh, right, yeah, right, yeah, Jim, Jim Lincoln, right, yeah, nice talk, nice, nice to meet you. I forget which one it was I met, but uh, one of the ones we had on. Oh, so I said, yeah, I, Shane, Shane, probably one of them was Shane, and the other was what, Mike? 
it was Shane. Actually, I think they both were there because I recognized both the voices, but Mike was involved in a conversation with somebody else. But I guess okay. uh, well, you, you probably already know this, but the, the announcement was the flared radiator SD70M in both the variants is coming out, and they're also redoing their all their all the entire SD70 line. They're retooling it. So the SD75, the SD, and now they're coming out with a flare radiator SD70. So both styles, the single, the dual radiator and the four radiator styles. That's cool because, yeah, the flare radiator. Why are they, well, I guess, do they feel that they've been eclipsed as far as on their SD70 line by maybe MTH or Intermountain or whomever as far as detail and they just want to get back up to speed? I don't think so. Nobody had done an SD70M. Nobody had done the well, no, flare I mean, radiator. But... said they were doing the whole SD70 line. Uh, it may have been that they, uh, imperfections, that they wanted to change. So he didn't get into specifics, but he, you know, that he just commented on that they had, they were going to be making the change, all those changes. I wonder. Um, now, it's curious the so, timing of, of the announcement, Jim, but after... Uh, Horizon has been purchased, you know, so you've got new owners, and I wonder yeah. if it's somebody with a vision of, hey, we need some capital investment to uh, become the preeminent supplier of high-end diesel uh, locomotives and cars and stuff. Curious, the timing. How neat, though. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, up until this point, the only flared radiator SD70M was by Athern in N scale. I mean, you could buy, I think, rail power, not rail, proto, uh, oh, I've read this name enough times, rail power products, I guess it was RPP. They, okay. they made a shell, but it wasn't, it wasn't particularly, it was an okay shell. It was, you know, it served its purpose, but it wasn't particularly detailed. The, the level of detail wasn't very fine and stuff like that. So, but it, it's better than nothing, but only just. So, okay. from what I hear, such a good-looking um, engine. So up until now, they hadn't been. I always, thought, I always thought so. I always thought they were much better looking than the standard SD70M. I always did. Just a, and they were nice locomotives anyway. Um, you know, to ride in them, they were nice. Uh, as locomotives, I I like them. The EMD cabs were generally uh, more comfortable. The only thing is they were, except for the uh, SD70 ACEs, were junk. That's neither here or there. It's another conversation. But those cabs were awful, awful. The SD70Ms were great. Those cabs were really nice. The SD70 ACEs, they, uh, they were just hideous. We called them thunder cabs. A lot of noise, huh? Oh, it was ridiculous. It was worse than being in an SD. I've, I've been in SD40-2s that were quieter. It's just ridiculous. Not for a modern locomotive anyway. You know, as far as those things go, the ES44s were very quiet. Very quiet and very comfortable. You know, so the SD70Ms were on par with that. But the uh, flared radiator ones were obviously newer than the other ones, so they were just a lot nicer, I, in, in my opinion. Didn't have too many issues with them, per se. Anyway, we're on a different track. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, you see a lot of, there's, there's a, there's a neat mix of, uh, manufacturers that go there, so, I uh, see a lot of manufacturers, see a lot of vendors. Lots of layouts. So it's a really cool place to go. And you meet a lot of people that you only see once a year. So, because everybody will make a point. You know, you have people coming from Canada and 
people coming from Florida and all up and down the East Coast to come to this. So. Okay. Well, and Chris and I are going to meet at the uh, Proto Meet over in San Bernardino at the end of March. So I'm, I've never been to one, so I'm really looking forward to that trip. Uh, mm-hmm. oh. So you've no, never been to never. an RPM meet before? Really? Oh, you're in for a treat. They're always a lot more fun, I think, than the standard train show. Um, but I, yeah, I don't go to many train shows. Uh, the next thing that I'm going to is, in fact, another RPM, uh, the one in Malvern, um, which is down by uh, Philadelphia, okay. called Valley Forge. But uh, going to that one, that one, that one switches. It cu- it's in Malvern every two years, and Pittsburgh every other year. Every other year, it switches between Pittsburgh and Philly. And oh, I'm getting what are you going to talk there. about? Oh, okay. About the chocolate. I uh, gave a gave a clinic on the chocolate at uh, a the layout design opsig meet in New Jersey, uh, and I'll just do that clinic again, and then I'll give that clinic again at the Collinsville RPM meet in Connecticut in June. Uh, I was supposed to have given a clinic in Cocoa Beach. I went to Cocoa Beach uh, in January as well, and um. They never got back to me. It was kind of funny because they had my name on file as being a clinician. So I had a cl- I had a clinician bad, but I didn't have to give a clinic, which was interesting. People would say, oh, what <laughs> clinic are you giving? Nothing. It's a fashion I just have the badge. That's right. That, yes, exactly. And that's always a good time. That, that, again, that's a – RPMs, you, you find, are, are, you know, are, are reasons to get together and meet people. A lot of these things are. It's it's you're you're there for the fellowship more than the trains. Although in the case of in the case of Springfield, much of it, you're going there to get a deal because people basically you can find anything you want. And I was very fortunate to find what I was looking for at an extremely good price. What I was looking for was Atlas has just come out with a brand new um, fifty four foot tank car. Atlas O, Atlas O has come out with a new with a twenty five thousand five hundred gallon tank car, and one of the things very realistic, you know, as far as an O scale car goes, very and um, they um, they just came out like five days ago, so uh, Atlas obviously had them there, but they don't. Atl- when Atlas comes, they don't sell anything; they okay. just have a lot of stuff. Now, is that an play. advance notice, or are they uh-huh. actually in country? The new cars. Oh no, they're. Oh no, they're in. They're in country okay. because I own four of All them right. now. I wanted to clarify because it's amazing they can do that, and yet they appear to be still behind the eight ball on HO track. Yeah, probably because those are old mold. The track is old molds. The the cars it, are. New. Could it be another manufacturer? It could be another man. It could be another manufacturer. It could be they just the old manufacturer for some reason can't find the molds. You know how that goes. Trouble with dealing with China. Yeah, it's uh, we started carrying lifelike. Uh, no, they have breathed Ooh. new life into their Code One Hundred comes in five pack boxes, and so I uh-huh. it just came in because we haven't. 
been able to get a lot of Atlas. And we have a, a customer segment that is code 100, and that's what they want. That's what they need. So I looked at the uh, new lifelike code 100, comparing it with the Atlas. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Both of them have black ties as a distinguishing feature. But the uh, lifelike is a smaller, more to scale tie. I mean, it's not a scale tie, but it's less not in scale. And it's less money than the uh, Atlas. So I hope Atlas gets their uh, their supply situation because uh, that's a long storied American company. Yeah, you, know, you just want to see them do well, and boy, they are just struggling. The the empty spots we've got on the shelf for the you know the sectional track, and it's not just us. I mean, you people go, well, you're the fourth you know hobby shop I've contacted trying to find this. So. I do hope they're able to get it straightened out. Well, one would hope. I mean, that opens up a place for Rapido, if Rapido yeah. Bendy. Now, he was going to bring that out in September. I've yet to see any. Did he? Really? Uh, I, I, you know, when I passed by Rapido, I kind of did a whirlwind tour of, they were in the Mallory building, which was the first building I went to. And uh, I kind of did a whirlwind tour swing past them and I saw they had Bendy track there. Obviously they weren't selling it. They had it. And they also had their FP they had a pre production model of the FPA four. Mm-hmm. Um and they had they had a Canadian national uh FP nine there and various other things. So uh but I didn't get a chance to talk to Bill. Uh, it's funny because I I was in proximity to him on, on Saturday night, but it, you know, anyway. Um, but I, you know, they were both kind of all everyone at Rapido, and I, it's also possible that I was going past them before the show actually opened. So uh, they may have been engaged in other with other people, and I just didn't get a chance to talk to them much. Okay, yeah, because I was looking forward to seeing what the track would. Uh look like I thought boy here could be an opportunity well, it looked pretty good I mean from what I saw I, mean, I didn't get a really close look I think I was going to a particular location where there had always been a dealer because I knew they probably were going to have these tank cars I wanted and they weren't there so I was kind of like trying to get to them before the place opened <laughs> And they weren't there. I found the car somewhere else at a better deal than I would have gotten at the other place. You know, I went in and they had him. He had him for a great price. He had, I think, he had sixteen of these tank cars. He had like all like. I hate it when you people say like, but I say it all the time. Uh, he had, you know, all four numbers of four different styles. And it's interesting because each car you have, uh, you know, GATX cars, which are basically just black cars with GATX on them and they have their correct placards so like these the ones I bought were 2055 and I forget what it is but it's for because I'm thinking of what I wanted to do for my a, a small little Proto 48 switching layout and one of the build structures I want to finish is a chemical place and um, a chemical plant and uh this particular 2055, which is a 
hazardous material is used in making plastic. So it would work. Uh, there was another one, I forget. There was, I uh, know they didn't have xylene, but, uh, and then they had several vegetable oil ones. They had a, the ADM with the uh, molecule, uh, they had the molecule yeah. symbol on it, and Cargill. They had Cargill vegetable oil cars. I got one Cargill vegetable oil car and three of the, um, 2055 hazardous ones. But they had, it was nice because, you know, the, the placards were well done and everything, so that that's nice. And um, and I was going to buy two because it was a particularly good price anyway. Because their their list price is ninety five bucks each. So he had them on sale for seventy six. Okay, fair enough. So I'll get two. He says I really kind of want to buy four, but I'll go. I'm going to go around the show, and if you still have any left by the time I get back, I'll buy two more. He says, what if I give oh. you a deal? I'm yeah, listening. let me play you the song of my people. Uh-huh, yeah, it says you buy four more, 70 bucks each. Okay, I'll take four. Good good thing, too, because when I came back later that day, all of them were gone. Yeah, okay. All 16, all 16 of those cars I'm curious gone. because I've, I've seen the photos and I was impressed by them. Did he have any of the new O-scale passenger cars? Those Cal Zephyr, I think, aren't they a Cal Zephyr prototype? We've been seeing in the magazine ads. Atlas? Yeah. Uh, I didn't notice, but I wasn't looking. I'm not a passenger car guy. So I'm not a passenger train guy. I've never been a passenger train guy. Just, you know, I just happen to work for a passenger train company. Yeah. You have to work on that uh, incongruity there. Well, in, in O-Scale, they're, they're kind of like huge. Yes, they are. Boy, they were beautiful. The photos I saw, uh, it was either on MRH new uh, product section, you know, that Mr. Bales does, or okay, uh, it was in somebody's print book. Uh, and I went, wow. <laughs> you know, if I were in those scale, I would be uh, like a fly to a, or to a moth to a light on that thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it just really looked good. Mm-hmm. So I did not I did not see any, but uh, the Atlas I would bet that had I been looking at them, they would have. I'm a tank car guy, yeah. So you know, they had basically every version of them at the Atlas booth. It's like oh, oh, oh. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to everything else. They they had a really nice. U23B, but they've had the U23B out for a while, so it's um, that's kind of, you know, here nor there. I have a several... The problem with Proto 48 is you end up having to convert locomotives, and I have a Atlas C425 sitting up on the mantle here, and uh, its major problem is it's a China drive, if you know what that is. Yeah, most most O scale locomotives don't have the drive like you're used to in an N scale or H O scale locomotive, which is what it is. It's two separate motors on each truck. There's a there's a motor on each truck, kind of like the the, Mont, the new Kato, the new Kato one, only not as good. <laughs> I haven't seen any one of those run. I Kato had them there. But I did, I did not see them running. Um, they had a, a a really nice 
N-scale display, but not... And they had HO-scale locomotives there, but they didn't really have them running. Well, on the, the one motor per truck and the China drivers, you're calling it, uh-huh. Does one motor do reverse and one does no, forward, both, or they no, work both, in tandem? They work in tandem. Okay. The The main complaint about them in O-scale is they don't have very good slow-speed control. Oh, okay. And it's also a pain to convert it to Proto 48 because you have to – I mean, you have to replace wheel sets and gears and – stuff, then you normally have to narrow the side frames, and it becomes complicated. So uh, they can be kind of a pain. So you end up having to remotor them totally, rip everything out and put in a new motor um, to to really get it done right. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Proto 48 has an issue. Um, unlike, you know, Proto 87 is... The one thing... The one thing HO scale has got going for it is there aren't schisms within the scale. N scale, you know, S scale, HO scale, they're all just one thing and they're all right. O scale has issues because O scale track is five, it scales out to five feet wide, not four feet, eight and a half inches. And uh, then you have three rail O and two rail O and both of them are five feet wide. And, you know, you have the toy train crowd and, the, and the, the scale crowd. But the scale crowd, it's not really right. And they, don't really, they don't really enjoy being told that. But because mainly, they're, they're mainly their, their take on it is we have such a large investment in what we have, we're not going to convert it to this. So it's one of these things that you're kind of perpetually stuck in this vortex and it will never get fixed because people have too much invested in the old stuff to fix it and make it right, if that makes any sense at all. It does. It does. So yeah. the the industry's entrenched then in, what would you say, five-foot scale instead of four-foot, eight-and-a-half? Yes, it's the, the the space between the rail. And some people say, well, you don't really notice. Well, it's three-and-a-half inches, but that would be a big deal to convert everybody's stuff. It is. It, it, I mean, it is, uh, and I can understand. I mean, if you have a lot invested, I mean, I can understand where you're coming from. I mean, totally. The problem that I see, uh, and I'm thinking about writing an article about this and putting it in O-Scale Trains, O-Scale Magazine, uh, just my take on it, is O-Scale is doomed because of it, I think. Line L won't be. The toy train, the toy train collector type thing. That will always be relatively successful because of because of what it is. You know, people get the Lionel train set under the tree. They remember it from when they were kids. Blah blah blah. You have the you know you have the 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 people. You know the guy the the guy in the crossing shanty as you go by. You know, flipping <laughs> out you know, that type of thing. Yeah, it's a toy train. The toy train will always be ah. <sighs> The toy yeah. train, the toy train will always have its place. Yeah, reflections of my youth. Was Intermountain there? Intermountain was there, yes. What did were they showing? What were they showing? Do you recall? I didn't take a close look at them because I had seen them at Cocoa Beach. So they had uh, their SD forty two and various variants. Um, they had a Pan Am version. 
that's the one that that jumped out at me was was the Pan Am Railways one. Um, they also have the pre-production model of the GP10, or yeah, the Paducah, Paducah ones, um, and various other you know HO scale and scale stuff. So they can be a little confusing because a lot of times they're nearby to a dealer that sells everything they got. So it's con- it's so nice that Titus wants to play with the toy right now. I'm sure you can hear that in the background. I can hear Titus doing his thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives the it gives the uh podcast some character, right? It does. It shows that we are kind of animals. Yes, yes. Um so sometimes they can it, it can be hard to figure out where Intermountain starts and the dealer is. You'd have to you'd have to be there to understand. But this one dealer that has like every Intermountain car you possibly can imagine. Like all in these huge and he has a very large uh, section of tables, and he's normally relatively close by to where Intermountain is in the uh, Better Living Center. So a lot of times they can guide. They kind of, for me anyway, I'm getting. The other thing is I wasn't very, I wasn't concentrating much on anything HO. So I wasn't. That's the one. You know, if you go to this show. And you're an HO person. If you don't go for two days, you're gonna, you'll miss a lot because there's so much there. If you're an O scale or an N scale person, you can blast through very quickly. I mean, just crank right through. The other thing is, if you're looking for things in particular, uh, for instance, KD. KD has a very large presence. Now, KD is right next to Exactrail. Uh, Exact Rail had some neat stuff, but they, again, are HO, and I, that's not really what I was looking for. They had the, their uh, center beam, the uh, opera window center Yeah, the opera version. Yep, yeah, that was nice. I did see that. Um, they had those there, and various different... Uh, see their new coil car? Again, I, I, I saw it, but I didn't focus on it. Okay. Not the really. Pictures are stunning, so I see two of them in my future. Ah, see, it's not really something of interest. So, even in the one thing about being a prototype modeler, relatively, is it kind of narrows your focus to keep from buying extraneous stuff that you really can't afford and need. Uh, not that we need any of it, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Okay. Uh-huh. And now, yes. Well, along this line, then, at the prototype modelers meets, do you yep. have manufacturers that show up there? Yes, I've never been one. Yes. Okay. The interesting Something thing else to look forward to then. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not going to be the same type of. I mean, for instance, Exact Rail was Exact Rail there. Exact Exact Rail was at well, Intermountain was at Cocoa Beach. Uh, Loke Sound was at Cocoa Beach. No one. One thing that was very impressive is uh, TCS. They had they had several versions of their Wow Sound steam decoder running. Very cool. Were you impressed with it? Very, very cool. I mean, yeah, they had a lot of really neat features. 
uh, to that decoder. And um, for instance, when you start when you start from a dead stop, well, the other first thing is it's sixteen bit CD sound, so the sound quality of it is better than anything on the market anyway. And then when you start up, the you know the stack has a very good bark. You know it you know just and it will also do uh, normally when you're starting out the, the psh, 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 and you yeah yeah it'll do that for as long as you want it to uh, and then but it has a lot of it the 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 stack will will talk to you heavily until it gets up to speed and once it gets up to speed it quiets down and one of the things he showed was now if I press down on the locomotive to increase the load and you press down on the locomotive the stock the stack starts talking again so it 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 reads the amount of load on the locomotive and adjusts the volume of the exhaust in accord with the amount of load on the locomotive at the time you know so you can you can drift you know and then there's ways to there's an actual functional brake uh that he said you can uh, you can power brake you can, you can actually power brake so as you're coming into a station uh like they used to do they don't really like to do it anymore because of they don't want to waste fuel and waste brake shoes and all these other things okay uh but for passenger comfort particularly uh by power braking you're able to keep the train stretched so you don't have slack run in and out and you can handle the train a lot better, power braking, because you never have, you're never in a bunched situation. You're always stretched. Okay. Well, now, some of the features you mentioned there, I mean, just, uh, I've heard them talked about in an overview basis, but I, I've never installed one or I don't have any of the wow yep. on any of my locomotives, but I do know that in Tsunami, that, you know, they've got their uh, dynamic digital exhaust, and you get up to CV-177 up to about uh, CV-180, uh, 181, and you can put in values to do just exactly what you're talking about. Okay. So, but it is a lot of programming to do, and if, you know, if you're using uh, JMRI, it probably gets a lot easier to do, but right. I do it the old-fashioned way, one CV at a time. Yeah. Uh, so the, here's the reason I ask about Intermountain, because have you ever seen the Intermountain cab forward? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're all familiar with, although I only recently, recently became familiar with, the challenges they had on the 2007 and 2010 releases of that locomotive operationally, not body details or anything. I mean, it's just a stunning, stunningly beautiful locomotive. Right. Not knowing any of this stuff, one of my buddies at the store uh, brings in his uh, AC-12. And he said, can we run this? And I said, well, is it DCC? And he goes, no. And so I unboxed it and looked at it. And I went, wow, this thing is really good looking. And I said, where'd you get it? And he told me. And so I said, well, 
let me order a decoder for it. I'll put it in, and uh, then you can run it on the store railroad back there. So I did all that. And so uh, I started weathering it, but then I said, here, this is what it is, because I had put it on my test track and some of the mice straightaways, and it just sounded great, and the tsunami's really good. Ran it at the store, and all of the things that you hear about the first two releases started evidencing themselves. And I went, holy cow. I said, I don't know what this is. So I said, let me take this back to the house. So for about three hours last night, I had my eyes opened by just Googling, you know, the IMAC uh, 12 and all the fixes, how you can fix all this stuff. And so I said, well, James, there's good news and there's bad news. I said, this may be release one or two, which has challenges. And uh, it involves, especially if it's number one, uh, remotoring. Looks like remotoring and a few things like that. And I said, you, get, you need to make a decision. Otherwise, this is going to run it. 25 miles an hour, so you're not going to be able to pull passenger with it. It's going to be a freight drag locomotive. And I said, there's still some other issues that cause it to freeze up. So let me know what you want to do. So I did get it running better today on the test track, but I've noticed a few things, and I went, okay. I want to find out, because I was going to buy one of these, and I know they just released the AC-12 December of, you know, 2013, and it's got the a different or Northwest Shortline motor in it, and they've made other tweaks to the gearing and stuff, and of course it's Lux Sound instead of Tsunami, which I'm transparent on that, but I just wondered because I've not seen anything in any of the forums about, hey, yeah, I am has finally addressed all the uh, the issues from the first two releases, and it's a really great locomotive. Mm. But I'm not around any Southern Pacific modelers, so I never right. hear the scuttlebutt. Yeah, I saw one running at Cocoa Beach. Okay. But I didn't pay any attention to it because I didn't know any of those things. Because I'm not a I'm not a steam modeler, and it's not one of these things that are, you know, I'm not going to be buying a yeah an HO Me scale. Too. I went, you know. Holy cow! I didn't know. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I had I had heard. Now that you mention it, I had heard there were issues with it. It's like it's absolutely beautiful, but it runs like junk. So, and to I, Intermountain's credit, I think they took care of. A lot of the problems, especially on the first release, and they had oh one price list I read they had a fix a choice of you know menu of fix items that they would do on release two if you still weren't happy and I thought, okay, if I'd invested that much money, yeah, I'd probably send it back to i m and pay them x amount of dollars to remotor it, regear it, and so forth. But until I hear how uh, release number three from last month is doing, I'm right. keeping the money in my pocket just because it is so beautiful. Right. That I don't need another locomotive just to sit on a on a track at a roundhouse. I want to see right. the puppy run if I invest in it. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So, like I said, I, know... I, saw, I saw it running around continuously at Cocoa Beach, but it wasn't. Okay. Going. Well, see, that's a good sign. You know, it wasn't going, you know, it was going, you know, 10, 15 miles an hour. It wasn't blasting around the layout because it wasn't a big layout. But, you know, it's a four by six oval. So yeah. that's all that was doing. So maybe a five wow. by six oval. There's a lot of stories out there about on the first ones before the fix was, you know, put into place and stuff, where they might go 10 or 15 feet and then lock up. Wow. And the motor would overheat or whatever. I've noticed on this one, it uh, when I just had it on the test track out there, it, it froze up and I looked at the valve gear and I said, why the heck is that rod binding? That's what had caused it to bind up. And it was like the hanger for the slide valves and stuff was in the wrong place. So I've kind of finessed that over. So I'm going to try it again because I saw where the binding was coming. But uh, oh, a lot of places to lube on it. I mean, there's, I don't know, 25, 30 spots that you got to lube on it. So I put uh, cleaned it all out and put uh, nano oil in there. So we'll see if that helps too. Because it's, okay. the, I was just curious. Uh, and if anybody's got any other suggestions or comments, we have a Facebook page, Model Railroad Hobbyist uh, Facebook page. Post them on there. You know, bring me up to speed because obviously I was not up to speed on this. Right. So. Yep. No, I didn't. You know, now, if you had, if you had known if the show was this weekend and you had said something to me, I would have happily have gone and asked. But. Well, this didn't surface till yesterday while you were oh. at the show. Ah. Because just in my installing the tsunami, testing it, programming it, you know, on five foot of track here, back and forth, none of this surfaced. Mm -hmm. It's only once I took it to the uh, store, and it did, the main lines there are about 250 feet. Okay. And it's just a 2% grade on part of it. So under no load, that first circuit or two, it was fine. And then all of a sudden it just stopped. And I went, what the heck is this about? And, yeah, so I'm cleaning track and I'm going, doing this, doing that. And so I just made note of all of the uh, the things and then came home and I went, oh, wow, that's exactly what it did. You know, this, this, and this that everybody was talking about were the symptoms this locomotive exhibited. So I'm, I'm going to finish the weathering on it and test run it some more and then just go, James, this is never going to be a passenger speed locomotive. Unless you want me to go buy a uh, uh, replacement motor and get the gear towers and stuff or whatever out of Intermountain and redo it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, but to me, freight would be okay. You know, if it well, did 15, real. 20 miles an hour, it'd be fine for me. But I as mean, long as it runs without just seizing up due to right. overheating and gear binding. Right. Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's unacceptable. But, I mean, I never see these things as being passenger locomotives anyway i guess they did it but it's yeah yeah but that really uh, wasn't what their purpose was i had uh, dropped a uh, proto 2000 e unit 
and that's not normally healthy. That's right. Not on going down to tile floor. And so the body shattered. One mm. of the uh, uh, worm gear covers broke. And but otherwise it looked okay. So I bought uh, found parts, put it back together, and uh, found an undecorated body on eBay. Salvaged all the parts off of the you know the cadaver and put them on there and repainted it in this uh, fantasy corporate scheme I have for CSX. And when I would run it with the A and B unit, the B's powered and everything's got tsunami in it, this unit would, it just won't play in the sandbox well with the others. Uh-huh. And so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, during the fall, then something's happened either to the windings, uh, the structure of the motor, so this little baby is, you know, not going to be a joy to operate. Uh-huh. So one of my friends goes, well, heck, just take the worm gears out. Make it a dummy. Yeah. Leave it a sound dummy. Yeah. I said, you know, I could do that. I'll leave the decoder and the speakers in there, and it'll just become a sound dummy. So a guy comes by the store the other day. He said, well, do you want a new motor? And I said, well, I don't know where to find a new uh, proto motor. He said, well, I've got one set up in the house. He said, give me 10 bucks and it's yours. So we'll see. I may remotor it. Otherwise, it will become a sound dummy. Uh-huh. So that works. Yeah. You ever had an experience along that line? The uh, the B unit in that ABA set, which is also powered, you know, just one of those days it runs fine for hours at the store, and then the next time you go, it won't move. And so I get in there and I go, you know, what'd you go to lunch? What? And or it would the motor would rev, but it would barely pull. Turns out the the drive coupling that is cemented inside the flywheel okay. had come loose. And so I put super glue in there and because I presume that's what they use to put it in there and reattach it and secure it. I've not run it yet, but I thought, you know, one the one A unit by itself will pull. Uh-huh. 10 Walters cars, which is this corporate train I've done. So I thought, hey, what the heck? I want a B unit. It's already got tsunami in it. If I have to, it'll become a one truck. <laughs> right. Tsunami, I'll just, again, take the worm gear out of the one because I just want the visual impact of the ABA. But Right. But, yeah, I had never considered Oh yeah, I guess I could turn this into a dummy just by removing the uh, the gears and let the truck roll. Right. Because the tsunami just picks up power. It doesn't care whether it's powering a motor or not. Correct. It makes a sound as if. Yep. Ah, oh, golly. Oh, if you if you look at um, uh, Joe Fugate's the, his DVDs on his his railroad. Yeah. At least at the time. He was running his three-unit diesel sets with two powered units and a and a sound dummy. Okay. He wasn't putting sound on every single locomotive, mainly because of power draw. Um, not that he couldn't do it. It's just <sighs> okay. 
Sounds the cat is playing with the squeak toy again. Uh, that's, no, I don't have cats. That's Harrison now. Harrison's playing with the squeak toy. Um, they have decided that they're excited and want to play. So, okay. Uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm not going to yell at them. So, it's, you know, it's like, Dad, you're on the phone, and now uh, we want to play. Okay. Now, one thing I've got to comment. Nobody will see this, but but me. But you've got a new Skype picture. And when it came up, I thought, oh, crap, I misdialed Mike Rose. <laughs> oh, okay. And then I looked real close, and I went, no, that's Jim. Yeah. But it's a very similar pose to Mike Rose of Mike Rose Hobbies. Uh, yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Some He's more that... of the uh, the Marlon Brando character out of uh, oh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit more, yeah. Yeah, I have a little bit more hair. That's right. And you've got kind of a skeptical smirk on your face like, oh, yeah, tell me how that worked. Well, people have been complaining that I don't look anything like my old Skype picture and I need needed to change it. So, And so you acted on that? Yes. Oh, that's great. Well, my compliments, you know, my compliments. So, hey, on the line, got uh, Christopher Palomares, who's just bursting with information he wants to discuss. Chris, what is on your mind? Well, you know, kind of looking back over 2013, yeah, uh, sort of a year in retrospect, uh, I was thinking about all the projects I had going and uh, what little I had accomplished, and I'm... It kind of started uh, a question inside my mind about how do you become motivated after you let a project sort of sit idle for a little bit? And this is within the context of model railroading? Yeah. Well, this is very much in the context of model railroading because I have about 20 projects I've started. (laughs) (laughs) They've gotten to about midway through. Um, completion, and then they have all stopped. So um, I, I, I'm just wondering if you had any tricks or thoughts about remotivating yourself after, well, you know, it, it, when you think back about 2013, well, yeah. how much did I really get accomplished with my model railroading in 2013? And I looked back, I was like, very little. <laughs> but I started a lot of stuff, and they're all neat projects. If I find myself with two or three open items, like starting uh, this Monday, I had a friend's locomotive to weather. Yeah. I had to replace the uh, damaged surface mount LEDs in one of my uh, passenger units. And then I had to reprogram a couple locomotives that just took a jolt, and all of a sudden they went went to hell in a handbasket. Plus, and strip a, a car to paint for somebody. And so I'm sitting here Sunday night, and I'm going, oh, crap, I don't want to do any of this tomorrow. So I just picked out the most time-consuming one, and that was weathering this uh, cab forward. And... 
it took most of the day because, you know, you can only sit so well and you got to take a break. And so I just jumped on the, the one I was dreading the most. And when I would take the break, then stripping uh, my buddy uh, uh, Mark's car so I could airbrush it for him. So I just kind of bounced those two off. And when I started making progress on them, then all of a sudden I got recharged because I could see I was, you know, crossing items off the list. So we we tend to be avoidance-oriented, so uh, yeah. at the store, yeah. building the railroad. Well, well, what I noticed, the projects where I'm going into uncharted territory. Okay. <laughs> I tend to have, like, well, I'll get to that later, and sometimes later never comes, uh, or comes three or four years down the line. But as far as 2014 is concerned, I'm really wanting to push myself to finish a few of these projects. A number of them, I just have to put on a gloss coat, uh, some lettering decals, a little bit of weathering, and I'm done. I'm thinking about doing those first so I just feel like I have accomplished something. Just get, get that under my belt, get one off the table, and then I'm hoping that that'll sort of recharge my batteries and get me amped up to do the other, some, the, the more difficult one. So I'm going to give it a try here, and I'm hoping by the next podcast I'll, I'll be very giddy and, and just jumping up and down saying, hey, I finished something <laughs> for 2014. I got 19 projects done to go, you know, one down, 19 to go type thing. The uh, Well, you know, something simple like you just mentioned, either gloss coating or dull coating. I have put off doing that on some things that have been painted, have been decaled, they're ready to go, and I want to take them to the store just to run them. And I go, oh, crap, that means i got to mix the dull coat. Then i got to clean the airbrush. And I have actually let that intimidate me. And then finally go, good grief, man, put on your big boy pants and go spray the car and clean the airbrush. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it's easy It's easy for, for me to go like, you know what, it's just too hot in the garage or wherever else to to be painting right now. It's just going to gum up in my brush, and that's the end of it. Being in a warmer climate, I'm sure you can relate to that, that little voice in the back of your head saying that. And it's just like, ah. I'll figure out something else to do, you know. <laughs> I mixed uh, some paint today and started priming this car, and all of a sudden it was drying in the head. And so I just kept opening up the nozzle just a little bit wider to get paint flow and ended up, you know, then all of a sudden a big blast of paint comes out. So I ended up with a run, so I had to go restrip that side of the car. And uh, I went, good grief, telling Bruce at Tesoro, I said, man, this is not my week for primer. When I was weathering the uh, the AC-12 the other day, I'm not an SP modeler, so I go on, you know, Google Photos of cab Fords, and I noticed in the later years, I mean, when they were getting kind of dirty, I could see hints of, you know, silver-painted side rods. They weren't machined or anything. And so I thought, well, I'll put gray primer on these bright, shiny intermountain side rods to make them look silver. Then I can uh, weather them up a little bit. So I'm sitting here, brand new bottle of Poly S, and I'm always very phobic about where I put the paint. 
knocked it over. So it's all over the desk. Didn't get on the locomotive, but it's all over the desk. And so I'm scrambling to clean it up. Okay, fast forward to this morning. I'm mixing more polyest. This time I'm outside. And I knock it over. And I'm going, what is this jinx I've got this week between me and, you know, polyest gray primer? <laughs> so, no, no, that was after two cups of uh, donut house coffee. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, the coffee will do that to me, too. If I don't have a steady hand yeah. Yeah. and, you know, I, I'm really amped up or excited about it, I, I just have to go do something else because I just know that it's going to end up in frustration or I'm on all fours looking for that detail part that dropped off that I was trying to put on or that screw, you know, whatever it may be. It's funny that you bring up the poly S actually, I, I updated my paint chart to reflect the, the model masters acrylic colors that were ported over from the poly S line. And that includes the concrete, the roof Brown, um, aged concrete, all the, all the common colors. Um, and that's on the Mall Railroad Hobbyist uh, in, in their forum. It's actually on my blog. Okay. And that model, okay. Which paint is it? The Model Master's Acryl. Okay. Is that the uh, the product made by Badger? By Testers. By Testers. Okay. Different different paint. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, the... Testers had the poly S line, which they discontinued. And a lot of people were wondering, well, what's going to happen to a few of my favorite colors? Uh, in response to that, I started trying to keep track of paint matches the best I could. I can't match perfectly every paint that they had to a different. But uh, what I found is a lot of common military colors are pretty darn close to some of the existing Floquil ones from different manufacturers like Vallejo, uh, Tamaya, all that stuff. And I, I put together a paint chart, and it's I have it on the, my blog in the Model Railroad Hobbyist forum. And feel it was just it, it's there as a reference if, in case if people want to find well, what what color is closest to like a rail brown, you know. I give the the product name, the number, the the sheen, et cetera, and it, and you just go there and you find the the one that you're looking for, and hopefully your hobby shop can get the paint from Model Masters, Testers, or Tamaya or whatever. I notice that there's a lot of hobby shops out there that are still kind of RC based. Yes, and those seem to be a little bit more in abundant supply than uh, some train shops, local train shops. So. Um, that, that was the reason for the conversion to, to the military line. It's just, I, I can go, I could go oh, 10 miles and, and find a military shop, military RC shop. Um, I have to go 300 miles to get to my closest train shop. So that, that was the thinking behind that. Uh, other people that might be in a similar situation as I am. Now, maybe I misunderstood this, but didn't MicroMark take over all the poly S formulas? I am not aware of that. I haven't seen any formal announcement to that effect. I think it's on the uh, MicroMark website. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen a, a formal announcement to that. Uh, I've heard rumors 
sort of around there. I didn't. I haven't seen any sort of like press release indicating that Micromark is going to do that. I haven't seen uh, so, someone mentioned that Horizon Hobby is going to do something like that. I haven't seen anything to that degree either. But but still, you know, you got to mail order paint at that point, and you kind of don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> okay. It, Hold on, hold on a second. Let's pause this. Let me grab the Micromark catalog that just came in the mail. I think it's in there. All right, let me thumb through this because I heard it from Bruce. And, okay, new from Micromark, superior quality acrylic hobby paint. Uh, it's called Micro Lux Custom Blended Hobby Acrylics. So, so it seems like it's their own own brand. What's well, their own brand, but it's my understanding, the way it was portrayed to me, was that they, oh, color matched to polyscale paint samples, labeled with polyscale color names for easy cross-reference. And it's water-based, okay. And you can shoot it, according to this, straight out of the bottle with an airbrush. Huh. Wow. Very cool. Uh, yeah. I Two-ounce bottles, 735. Okay, well, the, the ones that I cross-reference to are like a dollar ninety nine a bottle. Oh, well, that's good. And they're they're made by testers, the the same owner of Polyscale, so I'm sure okay. they have all the mixed formulas. And they also do uh, acrylic, enamel, and rattle cans, spray cans. So that that's kind of the thinking there is like if you do it to the testers brand, you also get the benefit of having you know enamel, acrylic, and then also as a spray can. So, like, for example, they, they have this gray that, that is a spot-on match for the Genesis gray that they use on their Southern Pacific locomotives. It comes in, yeah, it comes in gloss, flat, and a spray can. And there was a time that I just didn't want to deal with cleaning the airbrush, and it was like just painting a plow, <laughs> you know, so put the plow on some tape and just pull out the, the spray can. And it's the model master, so you get a little bit finer uh, spray out of the spray can. Um, okay. And, and it went on just fine, and it came out, the, the project came out great. You know, if you just want to paint, like, some handrails or something like that, just with a spray can, save yourself a bunch of cleanup, like what we were talking about earlier. Now, there's a paint made here in Phoenix, and it's now uh, distributed by Walters. Right. And I was looking up the name because... Acuflex? No. No, it's not. Or is AccuPaint? No, it's not. Not that. No, it's a totally different name. And we started carrying it at the store when Walters started distributing it. Mm -hmm. I was looking at it today because I've got friends who swear by this guy's paint. Back when I guess he was just you know small time. It's not cheap, but it had all the basic colors that were in the Flocal line. Oh wow. And like I say, it's carried by Walters now because we got our first shipment in. We were trying to stock scale coat, and we placed the orders and couldn't get it in. Uh, and I said, well, what's up with that? And apparently scale coat, you know, logically saw a big boost in demand when the Floquel announcement was made by uh, testers. So apparently they just got overwhelmed, I guess, with business. So in the meantime... Uh, I mean, because I like scale coat. I used it for years. And uh, now the paint that I I shot this custom train I've got here is the paint that's made by Badger, which is one of those ready-to-airbrush right out of the, the bottle. Right. 
The downside of it is when I do a job, either for myself or for someone, I always bring in new paint because it doesn't, once you remove the seal and you shoot it because it's in a plastic bottle. And so we're getting, my presumption is some uh, uh, molecule level migration of the moisture through the plastic. Yeah. And this stuff starts thickening. And I've never had any success at re-thinning it. I've tried alcohol. I've tried distilled water and stuff. So when I order it out of Badger over in California, it's very inexpensive. The the worst hits the the freight. And I just buy it. You know, if I'm doing a job, I just figure, okay, a bottle of this color, bottle that color. And then when I'm done, once I'm sure the touch-ups are through, and so I just pitch it. I don't try and save it because it's it turns to gummy bear consistency pretty quickly. But it's I like the paint per se. You know, I've had that same problem with scale coat. You pull off the membrane from the top, yep. you use it once, and then, you know, a few months down the line you come back to it. I guess the the, the cap must leach out or something. And it, and my Santa Fe yellow turned into cottage cheese. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hate it, when that happens. It, it, it happens from time to time, and more often than not with scale coat. And that's why I kind of like got away from it. You know, uh, the the one brand of paint that I could count on, just like I did my Floquil or my my Poly Scale, is the Testers Model Masters. I have paints that are you know ten years plus old, and I open them up and use them just like nothing, it, it, just like a when I first bought them. So okay. It's, All right, update. The uh, Badger paint is called Model Flex. Model Flex. I think I've used that in the distant past. I like it. I like the colors on there. Yeah, the colors are really true. Um, I, I was pretty impressed with, like, the BN Green and the uh, SP Scarlet and the, the gray. I mean, the, the red and the gray together was a perfect match for the decal, so I didn't have to overpaint the decal to kind of blend it in with the the red that I sprayed. So, yeah, I, I was pretty impressed with that. I, I just had, I'm just a naturally impatient person when I paint. <laughs> okay. So there's a this curing time that, that I just couldn't get past with that paint. I wanted something that could cure a little bit quicker so I could get done, you know, with my painting in a day rather than spreading it out over like three or four. And that was, that was the only reason that I didn't like it. I just, the way I model is a certain way, and I kind of gravitate towards products that let me model the way I like to model. Um, it wasn't anything to do with the paint. The paint worked very well. I, I mean, when I was using it, I just I didn't have to give it a, a coat of gloss or anything. I just went right on with the decals, and everything went together very smoothly. So I, I was impressed with it. Um, it just personally doesn't model. It doesn't allow me to model the way I want to model. That was the only only thing towards it. I know that it's, and this goes back to your company, Microscale. If I'm not really sure of what's a good color, mm-hmm. like I had used uh, Floquel, CSX New Image Blue and CX New Image uh, Yellow, I think were the two colors. Right. And the I was disappointed when, after I sprayed them and decaled and all this stuff about, wow, that is really not the intensity of the, of the blue that's on the uh, dark future. And then I went, well, you know what? Maybe this is bright future yellow and blue. Uh, seems more like that. So anyway, I saw on your 
a decal sheet when I had to buy new decals to redo the job. Uh, that it said use yeah the the model flex and it said for the yellow use Northern Pacific yellow and for the blue use Mopac blue right and I'm going boy I'm not thinking mentally that those colors are the colors I want but I bought them and once they sprayed on good grief they were dead nuts on yeah I was amazed well you know also I think it's important to to mention right now that some of these model railroad colors. Don't let the name fool you. This is not, we can't get too caught up in the Crayola colors like sunshine orange or something like that. There, there, we, we gotta really look at the color and paint by color, not by the name. Because, uh, especially with Floquil, I think now that it's gone, we can kind of talk smack about it. <laughs> you know? Okay. And one of the biggest things I can talk smack about Floquil was the perpetual change in color formula. From year to year, you know, from mix to mix. SP gray in the 80s is nothing like what it was in the 90s. Rail brown was nothing like it is now to where it was in the 90s. And earlier on in the 80s, it just kind of gradually got lighter and lighter and lighter. So if you have something that doesn't look right um, when you spray it, you might want to go back to kind of going going back to basics when you're doing your color matches. Grab a photo, match the photo as best you can, you know, kind of find the range and match it to like your blue or your yellow. Um, you don't want to match color chip of the real train which is really meant for outdoor lighting to a model paint chip because it'll just never look right. <laughs> it'll never look right indoors. It'll look way too dark. So you, you have to take into account lighting. A lot of my stuff, even ready to run models, I feel like the, the paint is just, well, maybe it's painted for as delivered, but that's just not really how it looks for the majority of its surface light or service life. And you have to kind of go back and, and lighten it up a little bit, and you can do that with dull coat. You can do that with uh, just putting a little a little bit of a, a beige in your dull coat and kind of just mist it on. Okay, so tinting the dull coat in beige to achieve what effect? To kind of lighten it up a little bit, lighten up the, the surface of the paint. That, that'll bring out some of the detail, too. That, that, in, in, in graphic arts, it's sort of like using a tint kind of lighten it up you know a lot of times when i'm painting a model starting fresh i will lighten up the base coat by 30 percent and then i'll go back before i do anything else right after i paint the base coat and with some real watered down like tamaya or acrylic with a do, do like sort of an alcohol wash okay and just wash on the darker color and by doing that you, you get a surface that brings out all the detail. It goes right into all the corners and stuff and darkens them up. So you get kind of like forced light and shadow. And, and that's a lot easier to weather on when you when you start weathering your model and stuff. But but really the, the key to making a more realistic model is by accounting for indoor lighting and maybe even go a little bit lighter and then darkening it, slowly darkening it with washes. All right, making mental notes, making mental notes. <laughs> when I do steam, and I've done a couple jobs for some people that want it weathered, you know, maybe I put a decoder in it, you know, put sound in it or whatever, and there I will typically do the underframing like weathered black. Yeah. 
just for what you said, because that washed out color of black really makes all that piping, the valving and stuff, you know, usually that's below the uh, running board down the boiler line, just really pop out. Right. And the other thing that you mentioned a minute ago about weathering, sometimes I will dull coat the model and then start applying pigment because there's more tooth in the dull coat for the pigment to bite into. Right, right, especially with chalks. Yeah, I'm, uh, I use all pigment now. I got away from chalk. Uh, it just has more intensity of color and it stands up better to the dull coat. It doesn't seem to diminish as much when I seal it. But then part of my improvement there was my wife bought a uh, twin, uh, what am I saying? I'm not saying this right, a uh, dual-action airbrush for me for Christmas. Oh, cool. And uh, so that I could put on, you know, an initial very light misting of dull coat and not obliterate all the pigment I just worked on and then just build up some successive light coats. Right. right. Yeah. What kind of dual action did you get? It's a Badger 360. Okay. So, and I know nothing outside of one. Wow, this is nice and bright and shiny. And uh, so it has, uh, I've really noticed a difference. I've only painted one or two things with it, but I've done a lot of weathering over the last month, 30, 40 cars that I just accumulated and had, had not kept up on the weathering. And so... I was doing them five or six at a time and then doing a, you know, big mix of dull coat and then uh, sealing everything at, at once. And that's where I really noticed that I had much more control and actually using a lot less dull coat by using this uh, dual dual action brush versus the, the uh, Badger 350, which, you know, an external mix, just push the button and it goes, uh, which, you know, I had fine tips and medium tips. But out here, the fine tip became just self-defeating because the humidity was so low that more often than not, it would just dry in the head, and I'd have to stop clean, then try and get back into the to the flow of uh, painting again. Right. So, yeah, my wife did really well with this paintbrush so, or airbrush. So I like it. Hey, I've got a question for you on decals. Okay. Your company. Yeah. All right. So, Mark... Uh, one of the guys helping me build this uh, railroad in the store. He had, he's an Arizona State University grad, so he's got a couple passenger cars he's done with ASU decals. And I said, wow, where did you find ASU decals? And he goes, well, I, I make my own. And I said, okay. He said, I just go on the web. He said, I find the the graphic imported into, and I think he uses Photoshop. Once I tweaked it, resized it, played with the resolution, he said, then I put it in uh, Microsoft PowerPoint. I said, okay. He said, I flow it in there and create a file. And he said, I take the file and my paper to Kinko and have them printed. But I said, well, okay, whose paper are you using? He said, well, I buy Microscale, just blank sheets. And he said, you have to use laser ink with it. So he said, that's why I take it to Kinko, because I don't have a color laser printer. I said, that is really cool. He said, fortunately, you know, he's making this statement. He said, fortunately for me, I don't have any white. He said, because nobody can print white, you know, I guess since the owl printers went away. And so I was looking through, well, and I said, well, that's cool. He said, well, where'd you go to school? And I said, well, Marshall University. And he said, 
have you done any private cars? And I went, no, I haven't. I said, uh, I've got a couple uh, BLI uh, duplicates in my Cal Zephyr. I could uh, put the logo. And he said, let me download the decals for you. So he brings them back, and I'm going, wow, that was quick. And so he had the, uh, some really cool decals, and he said, you want me to print them? I said, yeah. He said, you'll have to paint the background because we can't do white. I said, not a problem. I can do that. So I was looking through your website the other night okay. and i thought i saw white decal sheet instead of just clear or yeah, in contrast it's, it's, to just clear. it's a white trim film that's what they call it okay and it comes in a variety of colors okay because i've got a bunch of your trim film i've used it for doing especially the black for doing patches car patch all right so if we laser printed over top of this white and i cut it out and i went through the decaling process so i'd have white backgrounds yeah, yeah, that's that's the one way to do it for sure is to print it onto white or whatever color you want to be the background. Because there marshals a couple of the uh, emblems, one of them with the Marco, the the buffalo and all that stuff, have way back. All right. I'm, so he brings it in and I'm going, wow, that is so cool. And he said, yeah, here's big ones, here's little ones, because I'm all HL. And he goes, here, here's this big one. You could uh, do a boxcar with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me let me look at that. And I said, well, how much owe you? And he said, I've got 68 cents in this sheet of decals that I'm giving you. So I said, okay, I'll uh, put a codicil in the will to have my estate pay you the 68 cents. <laughs> okay, but white trim film is what any of us would want to order if we were making our own decals and we need a white background. Right. Okay. And do you know, let me just ask, because it begs the question, what is the difference then between your paper accepting laser ink versus inkjet ink? Do you know? Well, yeah, the inkjet ink is, it isn't temperature. It, it doesn't require temperature for it to adhere to the um, to the paper. Uh, inkjet ink is probably wanting to be more on like a dull or matte surface. Otherwise, it'll kind of beat up because there's a lot, just like when you wet down ballast, you know, there's a lot of surface tension to it. However, with laser ink, it is a heat set process. There's a drum that heats up the paper and it sets the ink down. Okay. The, the laser, it, it, you have the opportunity to really screw up the, the printer if you use completely the wrong settings. Fortunately, I've never discovered the wrong settings because I always ran it through on like I think it was uh, transparency. It, it treated it treated the decal paper like a transparency, so I, I don't think it heated it up enough to to melt the, the transparency, but it did heat it up enough to melt the uh, ink down. So a word to the wise on that. But uh, when you take it to Kinkos, they may freak out. I've had I haven't had any trouble you know printing through Xerox. I've printed through a Doc 12 Xerox. It was a real big Xerox machine, but it also could print out um, copies as well. And that's what I used when, before I started on Microscale, I was using that to do all my home printing. And it worked very well. And I was doing a lot of custom decals for, like, refrigerator cars that were white, hopper cars, again, kind of a light gray. So that, that worked out really well. Um, but as soon as you got into printing white, you just, you're just going to end up having to print silkscreen decals, unless if you know someone with like a $3,000 uh, Kodak printer, because I think the Kodak printer is the successor to the Alps. Okay. And it, it's a proofing printer that they use for printing spot colors to proof them before they go to press. 
So it's a real specialty thing, and there's not a lot of companies out there that are you know printing decals right now that have that that have that machine. Um, Microscale, I know, would love to find a machine that can hold up to the tolerances of our silkscreen decals. And right now, we get a bunch of people kind of soliciting Microscale. Hey, look at this new printer! It, it can print on demand, and it can print white. It can print you know, clear and all this stuff. And we'll go, oh, great. Let's check out the resolution on And invariably, it always comes back. Or it's just not, it, it just wouldn't be a product that, that we would sell just because the resolution isn't high enough yet. It's kind of like uh, the 3D printers. You know, you got to give it a little bit more time. And, and then I'm sure there will be on-demand decal printing through microscale. So... But they, I know they've been looking at that for at least 10 years now, trying to find something that would allow them to print on demand. But it's just not – the technology just isn't there yet. So short story long, yeah, <laughs> use use white trim film for for background stuff so you're printing black. Um, yeah, the other thing, too, this this gets a little dicey. If you have a black field, say if you're, your sign is black, and you want white lettering on it, so you do an inverted piece, and and you print it out on your white trim film, and you try to trace out with an exacto knife along the black edges of the sign. What's going to happen is it's going to chip, and there's nothing you or I can do about it because the ink is sort of laminated down. It isn't glued down like a painted surface where it could stand up to being cut. Uh, you know, how, how things are laminated together. It's a piece of paper with, like, a film over it, and you need to cut away from the, the edge of the paper so there's still film kind of trapping the paper in between the laminated um, sheets, I guess. Uh, you got to take that exact same approach to doing some of these things. You, what you would have to do is two separate decals. The, the black with the inverted lettering on clear, and then you cut out a smaller rectangle of trim film to lay down first, and you put the black on top of it. Okay. So you'll have to do a two-step process to get the, the white to, to come through a, a black field. And I explained this in one of the microscale newsletters, too. So. <laughs> uh, did you? Okay. Yeah. I get it now. Maybe it was in one that uh, before my time. Yeah, there's an archive of them. And on the, the Microscale website, you go to view past newsletter issues or something like that. I forgot off the top of my head what it says exactly. But you find the archive of the newsletters, and you can go through each one and through each of the articles that, that I've written or someone else contributed over the past couple of years. I guess three years now, four years, yeah, three years okay. now. So there's a lot of info on there. I know a lot more now than I did uh, when I asked the question. <laughs> well, you know, it's something that I really want to do. I, I, I noticed there were quite a few in the forums. I noticed there was a, quite a few discussions and questions about how to create artwork for printing decals. And I, I was wanting to go in and actually write an article about how, how I approach it, maybe even include some downloadable templates where the reader could just like download the template and, and hit the ground running but creating some print-ready decal artwork, you know, whether they print it out themselves or go to a, um, a printing agency to print it out for them, like Kinko's or even Microscale, if they want to do something with white 
Yeah. So as soon as I get get going with the <laughs> some of my projects, uh, I, I can actually demonstrate to um, custom printing and all that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, there's a lot out there. I mean, just as far as like free software, there's a, a number of programs I discovered. Well, someone mentioned it in, in the forum. I checked it out. And, uh, I, I thought it was a pretty good program. Let, let me just pull up the name of it here. And it's it's a publicly downloadable program for free, and it runs on a Mac. It runs on a PC, Linux, all that good stuff. Let's see here. It, it is um, Inkscape. There it is. Okay. And that's uh, one of those freeware um, open source programs. And uh, I was able to do some decal artwork with it, actually. So one of these days, I'm going to put down a lot of my little tricks and techniques for creating decal artwork. Yeah, I'm sure you know, it's not just me. It's other. We're all wanting to make signs. We want to do custom de- uh, decals and stuff. So yeah, I could see that being a, a, a very informative series of uh, articles or uh, blog posts. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's, it's going to be pretty much a collection of screen snaps with uh, a few photographs of the printing process, mm-hmm. um, the application process. The other thing too. When printing your own decals, you got to keep in mind that they're not a, a silkscreen decal. They're they're a little bit more de- delicate, so you, you'll need to overcoat them with a, a special. Uh, well, well, Microscale makes it. It's a um, liquid decal film. You, you put a, a very light coat over that, and then you can put it in the water and put it on your model. But even still, when you do that, you don't want to do the standard Microsol, Microset, and all that stuff on there. You'll want to let it kind of cure first and then touch up the areas that's kind of silvered with uh, some Microsol, just because it's more delicate. Well, now, uh, Mark said, hey, this stuff will release off the paper very quickly, and he said it's it's fragile. Right. When you're talking about putting on the decal film, right? I've done that on some older decals that were just past their prime. Right. I should have pitched them, but I... I overcoated them with it, and then I could not get the uh, solvents to penetrate them and make them shrink down, you know, right. over the, the rivets. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Well, like I said, you got to kind of do a two-tiered process with it. Um, since it's more delicate, what's going to inevitably happen is when you go over, like, rivets or something like that, a rivet, a seam, a series of complex surface details. Yes. Um, you got to just lay it down. And however it kind of cures, you got to just let it cure like that. And then kind of go back and, and coax it with a exacto blade. Just sort of go back and just put in a few little micro micro holes in there so you can put in some uh, microsol. And the microsol kind of start pull the decal closer and closer to the surface. Okay. This doesn't always work. Because it is a more fragile decal, it's not going to naturally form and shape over like a, like if it was solid silkscreen ink. Inevitably, what happens is the, the decal will break apart a little bit, and you just got to touch it up with some black paint or whatever ink that you use. If it's a full-color decal, it's obviously going to be a lot more difficult to kind of hide the, hide the seams and 
rivets and things. So it's just the nature of the beast. You, you do the best you can with it, and then you kind of go back and touch it up with some paint. Okay. Well, for, uh, forewarned is forearmed. <laughs> right. And he's given me so many decals before I take this BLI car and airbrush white on it. Right. I'll probably just take some styrene and play with the, that or an old junky car that's got some detail and just play with doing what you said so I can get it to snug down. I think that is always the best thing to do is find a car with some rivets, some seams, some welds or whatever, and, and just try putting putting the decal down there. And since you could probably get more of them, it's like no big yeah, loss yeah. of you. <laughs> if you lose one. So I, I would recommend playing with that first, and that, that would go for anyone. Just try it out like on a Tyco Junker. Put down the decal, get used to it. See see if the – what I've noticed with some of the decals that are custom printed is the, the very edges will kind of curl upwards. And that, my friend, is a royal pain in the butt because once they curl upwards, they don't want to go back down and lay flat. Most of the time I, I, I narrowed down – the reason why they curled upwards is because the decal's react, reacting to the micro set. You might just decide the, the decal would work better by just using some distilled water to break the surface tension on the model and then putting yeah. down the decal, just letting it dry completely, letting it dry completely, and going then, go, then going around the edges with the, the micro saw. All right. I understand what you're saying there. Because one thing that I do when I is I cut very close to the printed area. Right. I've seen some guys just cut one and a half millimeters around the outside. And that's just film you got to cover up. Right. So I always try and cut right up to that color line with either a number 11 blade or I've got some very, well, actually, I absconded some of my wife's uh, sewing scissors <laughs> that were real high quality and very sharp. Right. And do that. Okay. You won't really be able to do that with custom printed stuff. Like I said, it's, you, you have to, it, it, it's, you have to leave a little bit of clear on the edge around the, the printed area. Otherwise, it's going to start chipping. Oh, okay. No, I was thinking about like a fat hair or something, not right up to the color, but yeah. minimizing the clear. Yeah. When, when you minimize the clear, you don't want to be like, touching the blade to the printed area. Okay, no, I would say off of yeah. that. Yeah, just just like I said, it's laminated. The, the ink isn't truly stuck to, to the decal uh, film like, say, decal ink would be. So it's laminated down, and the lamination is the decal film, the ink, and then your overcoat being microscale uh, liquid decal film. The liquid decal film and the bottom decal film kind of laminate together, kind of sealing the printed image. And that's an interesting story. I had painted a uh, couple engines and had done the A unit and everything was, was fine. I sealed it. I was wrapping up the B unit and instead of grabbing the microsol, I grabbed the microfilm. Uh-oh. And this was a, what amounted to like a billboard size CSX on this locomotive because it was a fantasy scheme. So right. <laughs> I went, so I put it on there and I'm playing on the computer and I look over at it and I'm going, why isn't this thing snugging down? 
Oh, maybe I didn't put enough on. Uh-oh. <laughs> Loaded up a brush again, did it, put it on there, and I happened to just, you know, let it set some more. And the bottles have two different colors of printing on them. Right. And I went, oh, my gosh, that's not the right color bottle. And I picked it up and went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and needless to say, then the, the Microsoft, the, the Delco, or I'm sorry, the uh, Solvus, that nothing would touch it. It was bulletproof. Yep. Oh, crap. So the only thing I could do is just took one of my wife's, uh, these little white high-density foam makeup sponges. I think women use them to take the makeup off with, and they're great for moving pigment around and minimizing it if you put too much on. And <laughs> so I took uh, 91% rubbing alcohol. Fortunately, there were body panels that I could follow, and the alcohol just went right through everything in a heartbeat. Yeah. And... Uh, so I had to, in fact, it took off the primer. So I had to go back, re- you know, got some of the uh, to, the Tamiya masking tape, had to burnish the edges of it, and, oh, gosh, yeah, remask it, uh, reprime it, then shoot the color. And fortunately, I had more decals. I think I bought a couple sheets of your decals. I had that. This time I took the, the, the decal film stuff, set it five feet away, and just, <laughs> then I'm paranoid. I'm, I'm constantly rereading the label, you know, to make sure it doesn't magically change on the desk. And it all turned out well. I didn't have any uh, paint seams or anything. Right. But, oh, I went. And it was the last decal on that locomotive. Everything else was done. And I went, what in the world did I do? Because, <laughs> you know, I've noticed that, like, on, I forget which set it is, but it's uh, it's the big CSX Dark Future uh, diesels. And the, the CSX, which is printed in that new image yellow, I guess, is, I mean, that's some opaque yellow on there. Yeah. And it it takes a number of applications of the decal softener to get that through all that paint. Yeah. And sometimes it, like, wrinkles up into a ridge. Sure, yeah. Boy, I'm in here with the finest pins I've got to try and get that to, to lay down. And, uh, yeah, it's, o- it's opaque, I'll tell you that. Once it's on, there's no blue bleeding through. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so it <Yeah>. works. <laughs> Yeah, it works. It's almost like, I went, good grief, it's like vinyl lettering. <laughs> well, if it were an easy hobby, anybody could do it. Yeah, I'd it. Well, you know, as far as like time-consuming projects, uh, I, I think the decaling is, may not be number one, personally. I, I, I think there, there are other processes in this hobby that, that, take the number one spot or darn near close to it. Yeah. For example, I think um, putting on some of these detail parts that that are so microscopic or they require like 12 different holes in succession to actually lay down. Um, Yeah. I've been changing out a number of my plastic roof locks and things like that. And I swear there's about 24 different holes I got to drill in the roof of uh, of a hopper car. To, to put down a, you know, a, a new brass etched roof walk on some of them. And it, it, it's, it's a bit of a pain. <laughs> I think decaling is a lot easier than some of that because all the holes just got to be lined up perfectly, you know. 
I'm a big fan of uh, Centralia Shop, Cabis. Uh, and so one of the guys at the breakfast club, he's in there, and he, I see the Centralia box. He said, anybody want to buy this Centralia Caboose? 20 bucks. And I said, well, what style is it? And so it was the more modern. Uh, it had the, the brighter red. It wasn't like steam air. It was diesel air. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, and you only want 20 bucks? He said, yeah. He said, I've got two of this number. He said, no, I'm not going to take the time to renumber it. So I whipped out 20 bucks and put it on the on the road and going around. And uh, it had Atlas couplers on it. Now, mind you, this was an older Centralia. And so I was kidding him. I said, did you put these couplers on there? He said, no, it's the way it came. I said, really? Centralia doesn't use Katie's? I said, these are the Atlas two-piece, you know, looks like big Christmas ham sitting on the end of this car. <laughs> and so he goes, no. He said, that's it. So I go to change them out. And if you guys that are listening to this are familiar with it, the the draft gear cover plate is almost, at least mine, was cemented in place. And I thought, you know, because there's two pins, you can see the cover goes over. And I think, okay, good, just snap fit. Maybe it's real tight. So I got jeweler's uh, screwdrivers in there and a number 11 blade. And it finally came off, but I could see the residue of cement. Uh. So I'm going, okay. So I got the other one off, put the couplers on, re-glued everything. And I'm looking at the, the running board. They're supposed to be, you know, the more modern type, great, open great. But they're just globs of plastic. And so I go, well, that's okay. I'll pop these off and go to Plano and get some of theirs. Well, whoever had glued this together, at that, and I'm presuming the factory, had not just used little judicious dots of glue. It, it was like globs of it to where it deformed the, uh, the plastic. Oh, no. So I went, oh, crap. I got out the squadron putty, smoothed all this out, sanded it down, Got the uh, the Plano kit in, and it was, it's like you say, there's 20-some holes you've got to drill. I mean, it looks good once it's done, but it when I bought the next one, I opened it. I bought it at uh, the Whistle Stop over in Pasadena, mm-hmm. and I said, can we open this box up? I said, I really want to see what type of uh, running boards are on here, because it was steam era. Right. And so it had, back when they had wood running boards up there. Mm-hmm. Which were fine. You know, I didn't have any problem with that. But now the other one, once I got the Plano uh, uh, etched metal boards on there, I mean, it just does. It looks good. But, yeah, what a challenge. You never know. It's kind of like what somebody's got a phrase like, you know, you never know what's at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box, you know. <laughs> I think it's, you know, <laughs> Uh, Where is it? Uh, Meatloaf said there ain't no Coupe de Ville at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. Uh, <laughs> well, well, that you know, it's funny that some of these cars are, are labeled as RTR. Well, maybe in the most general sense, um, as far as like having metal KDs on there or, yeah, you know, getting them to be the right weight. Everything's all cemented together. The roof, the the floor, everything is just glued down, and putting weight in a boxcar, especially an RTR boxcar, can actually lead to the destruction of the boxcar. So, yeah. in some ways, it's gotten a little bit more difficult to get to, you know, some of these conformances of just the regular weight 
um, having good couplers on it, the, the nicer wheels. Um, these things people say, well, you don't need to, you don't need to buy KD couplers or nice wheels. Well, yes, you do, because I noticed that a number of RTR wheels, um, the wheel is not squared perfectly to the axle, so they kind of wobble. <laughs> you know, and I look at them like the, the, ready to roll in quotes. You know, <laughs> yeah, ready to wobble. Ready to wobble is definitely more like it. Yeah, the first uh, BLI Zephyr cars that I purchased, two of them had wobbly wheels, and so I just, you know, there was customer service number, and I said, I've got uh, two axles here with uh, knock need wheels. And he goes, okay, where do you want me to send the replacement truck? And I said, I don't need trucks. Just send me the wheels. You don't send me the truck. The rest of the truck's fine. And he said, no. He said, I've got them in stock. So I just, and so, I mean, they took care of it. But uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, sometimes the quality control slips. And that happens. Good grief. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I just wish they wouldn't go crazy with cementing so many of the components together that we need to service the car especially being able to get to the inside of the car, whether it be a tank car, hopper car, box car, flat car, whatever, just being able to get in there to put in some freaking weight, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, uh, Xactrail, they're real good about just lightly gluing a lot of their roof panels on. Yeah. Uh, so that makes it easy. And I just, I noticed I bought a uh, an Intermountain undecorated uh, extended vision caboose kit it's actually a kit and it's got somebody's beautifully etched uh running boards to be applied to it but since it's a kit yeah getting in with the uh i use the quarter ounce uh adhesive back tire weights right i bought a I did, the box was like seven pounds it was 35 dollars with shipping out of jc whitney oh yeah mm-hmm uh, so we bought a bunch at the store. I said, Bob, bring some of these in. You know, people buying weights all the time. And so we just broke down the box and packed them, I think, uh, two or three ounces per. But I had used a whole box of that stuff myself when I made the decision. Everything's going to meet NMRA weight. Right. And, yeah, but what a great little product. I think Harbor Freight Tools recently had a digital scale um, on on clearance, and I bought one for like seven dollars. It's very accurate. Uh, what what surprised me is I, I've gone. Let's see here. I started modeling and doing, you know, going around to different clubs about I'd say 1988 to the point of now, without having a scale whatsoever. And it just did the old lift test, like, oh, that's heavy enough. Nope, that's not heavy enough. You know, but actually going through and weighing all my stuff and bringing it up to conformance, I didn't realize how far off a number of my cars were. And the ones that I always thought were a little over overweight were exact. They were right on. So kind of changed my perception of uh, of weighing cars. And I'm going back and changing them all now. Um, I got those weights that you were ta- describing, and they, they work great. Uh, one th- one thing that I one thing uh, that I am doing. This is my own little theory here, is when I'm weighing the car, I only weigh the underframe. I take off the trucks. I take off the the body because 
my assumption is you need to have, without the weight of the body and without the weight of the trucks, a true what how many ever ounces say four and a half ounces five ounces whatever well how does nmra specify right there whatever the the nmra specification now i mean do they specify just frame only or they well no they don't say one way or another but as far as like you know the body makes it top heavy the trucks kind of reduce the um or they, they don't reduce they lower the center of gravity so if you have all metal trucks that that add to the weight they don't really add to the weight. They just lower the center of gravity. What you want is to have enough weight be pushing down on the trucks to keep it down on the track. But if trucks are heavy, I mean, I hear what you said, but I'm thinking, well, if trucks are heavy, that's still weight that's holding the truck down to the track. No, it's just is it mass. Not? It's just mass that kind of lowers the center of gravity. You know, a wheel spinning is just a wheel spinning, you know. Well, but that's rotational. That, that's rotational mass. What you need is actual force holding the truck down. So what I did is I, I weigh the – I've been weighing all my cars with just the, the underframe and weighing them according to anomaly practices, then reassembling anything. And it comes out like a half ounce more than, say, the anomaly specifications. I'll say roughly a half ounce. But I've noticed that things just run a whole lot better by, by focusing all the weight on the underframe rather than including the weight from the shell, which can be top-heavy, depending if it's a high cube or whatever. And by using, like, uh, the, the trucks, if the trucks add to the mass, it, it really doesn't add to the mass as much as it lowers the center of gravity. Putting the, the weight as low as possible on the, on the underframe helps as well lower the center of gravity, thereby also keeping the, uh, the freight car on, on the track. No? I've got 25 transition era cars on the behind, you know, my Paragon Santa Fe Northern. And we've got a 2% grade on the, uh, the railroad over this one 27-foot section. I took the locomotive off to just go clean the wheels the other day, and the train drifted down, and I pulled it back. I was amazed at how much weight, just 24, yeah, transition era, 40, 50 properly weighted cars, this locomotive is, is uh, carrying around. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I, I felt, I, I, I tried pulling a 100-car train of that just by pulling the, the, the coupler, the KD coupler, and there was, it, it was heavy, <laughs> And this is on a flat modular layout, just like, mm -hmm. I was pretty impressed with the pulling power of some of these locomotives, you know, especially some of the Cato ones, the ones that have the extra weight inside the, in the, in the body cavity. Uh, yeah. Those things just, they're like stump pullers. <laughs> to be able to pull all that, the, that mass behind the, the locomotive, it, it, it was pretty impressive. And it was further impressive that these little itty bitty Katie couplers, Held up to that sort of stress, you know. Uh, yeah. The Do you have any of the uh, Athern? They've done it both as Genesis and Ready to Run. The Automac, the articulated auto carrier. Do you have any? I don't personally have any, but I know a few guys that do. That's a heavy car. We had a train made up of 25 of them just because we had uh, a guy came in on consignment, and he had 25 of these he wanted us to sell for him. So we said, hey, can we make a train out of these? And he'd go, yeah, well, that was a lot of weight. We put an Atlas, uh, one of the Gullwing Dash 9s, I think is what it was, uh, on there, DCC, and it wouldn't take it up the grade. In fact, it's strained to get the, uh. these 25 cars rolling. And so legitimately had to consist a second uh, Dash 9 
there too and then it it still slowed down in two percent grade so <laughs> yeah so it's, it's amazing how much weight you can get behind a train yeah that uh what the p42 kato video that they made showing of pulling what 16 pounds yeah yeah I holy cow that. yeah yeah that's a that's a lot, and they were taking it up a decent grade, kind of like uh, the grade in uh, North Carolina, where they call it Saluda. Yeah, the Saluda grade. Yeah, what four percent or something like that? I mean, it's it, huge. It, it's it's crazy up there. Uh, it, it might as well be like a road type grade going over a mountain where they're like four or five percent. <laughs> they're running trains over it. Crazy in a good way. Us rail fans love seeing you know locomotives struggle and work and bark and. Yelp and Spark and I'll go try to go up a grade like that. Yeah. So, well, I see the, uh, I think Jim and I talked about this the other day. The uh, big boys has been pulled out of the park and is on its way uh, up north. You weren't there when they pulled that out of that park, Paul? No, I wasn't. Oh. Uh, I, I was there, I think, a week or two earlier, and it had to do with uh, some scheduling issues. Right. So, but yeah, I've watched a number of the videos on the uh, on YouTube, and I think it was so cool they hooked up air to the big boy whistle, <laughs> so that at the grade crossing it's a big boy whistle instead of an air horn. That is so cool. Yeah, you know, when the last time I was down in that area for the Anaheim Great Train Expo, a few friends and I, we decided to do sort of like a midnight jaunt, kind of tour the Southern California, going over to Colton Yard, going over to a, a couple hot spots around the area. And we landed back over in Pomona. We did this about like 10 o'clock at night. Going up to the big boy was sort of like some of these movies where UFOs crash landed and they have all these military lights around it and oh, yeah. you guys. It was sort of like that. <laughs> they had this locomotive all lit up. I mean, you could take pictures and there were security guards sort of, you know, walking a perimeter around it. It, it, it really looked like it was about ready to take off or something. It was, it was very impressive that night. It was very dramatic. Unfortunately, the, the guy, that that took us down there worked for Metrolink, so it wasn't it wasn't any problem with any security or anything like that. But well, well what a sight to see! Everybody was like, "Oh wow, they're going to get this thing moving again." What what were the chances of that? I mean, ten years ago, we we're like, oh, "What's wrong with this? We can't get a big boy going on anywhere here. There's not one restored big boy." I mean, so in in the land of preservation, this is a huge milestone to to have that thing back in uh back on regular rails rather than sitting idly over at a, a museum. So big win for that. Well and the trend there for a while, because you know, new leadership took over Norfolk Southern and okay, so all of a sudden the twelve eighteen and the six eleven go silent. Uh the six fourteen uh four eight four Greenbrier Northern was running a lot, and then now it's stationary at a museum. So there was an ugly trend developing there for a while. So maybe this is the reversal, you know, the corporate statement being made by Union Pacific. Uh, maybe we can get some of these other truly unique uh, preserved locomotives back out as a, an effective PR tool. 
hope so. Well, I hope so too, and I hope that they see value in getting some of the steam locomotives and maybe even the diesels that have been restored by museums, uh, allowing allowing them to run run on the Union Pacific rails. Right now, I know there's a, a bit of a contention about that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. say you know the Southern Pacific 44 or 49 hasn't been down the S, the former SP coastline and and decades really and there's no chance of it right now without the support of union pacific um, reaching out to some of these uh restoration groups historical societies and museums so i had heard that was a personality issue between uh two key people one on the up side and one on the locomotive ownership side well, it would be locomotive ownerships. Uh, okay. This would also include the over at Colfax Railroad days. Uh, uh, the Colfax is in Donner Pass for people that don't already know or not familiar with the the California area. Um, what the California State Railroad Museum had was they wanted to run their E9 and display it over at the Colfax Railroad days, and there was. A problem with that, the Union Pacific was kind of leery about having a um, an outside historical society bring up their locomotive to there. So it wasn't able to make the event. And it seems to be kind of unilateral across the entire system at this point, where it's only the Union Pacific uh, steam group can run mm-hmm. on Union Pacific rail. So hopefully the, the, they might find a value in in allowing some of these other groups that preserve railroad history to to run on UP rails again. That would be absolutely fantastic. And, you know, we can only hope, <laughs> you know. Okay. All right. Because uh, I've got a uh, video. It's, uh, it's a Blu-ray. It was made by a company called, I think, uh, High Def uh, Video. And it was three or four DVD set, but it was the 844 and the 4459 running across Oregon, I guess. What's that? The Columbia River? Yeah, they did that back in the 80s. They had the 4449 and the 8444. And part of the, part of the whole thing was they're coming over Cajon and they were going the same direction. So they were kind of pacing each other at times, you know. Well, this, on this video, which was shot in 2000, I want to say 2004, 2005, went across BNSF rails. And I've probably got the uh, the area because I'm not familiar with the uh, Pacific Northwest up there. But uh, but then that was the UP working in conjunction with the private ownership of the uh, of the GS4, and then running on I want to say it was BNSF rails. Maybe it was UP, but it the, was the 4449 was brought back, and it ran on BNSF. The BNSF doesn't have um, any problems with uh, historical societies running their locomotives and restored equipment on their rails. So what BNSF did back in 04, I think it was, they did a, an employee appreciation special or something up there in the Pacific Northwest. And yeah. they ran the 4449 on this employee special. Okay. Hold on. Like, hold on. Just a no second. Okay. Since I brought it up, I'll let it, this out. Yeah. It's, uh, it's Mark Cam Productions, which is high def trains. Mm-hmm. They do Blu-ray and. Wow. They did a Blu-ray. Got, cool. I've got two of them. Western Winter Wonderland 
it's all 16 by 9. Uh, most of these, they give you the option of live sound, music and live sound, music only, narration on, narration off. And so the Legends of Steam is Witness SP4449 and UP844 Devil heading for the first time in excursion service from Puget, uh, coverage of the Puget Sound Steam Special from Portland to Tacoma, uh, and return. So, and they did, uh, there were actually, I think, four videos in the, the, uh, series. And this was done, like I said, 2007. Uh, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, these guys are videographers. It is nothing but excellent. They're real fans, but they're also professional videographers using, like Barry does on Trainmaster TV, broadcast quality equipment. So, okay. Well, since I brought it up, I thought I'd ought to yeah. give the right names out there. And they've done others, too. Uh, they must have, I don't know, 15 DVDs that you can buy. Some are quite unique. Well, you know, the video that I just saw that I'd really recommend um, to anybody that's interested in modeling the 1980s or California railroads is the Sea Vision production. And it's all vintage footage of California, all the way from Northern California to Southern California, points in between uh, desert, the coastline. Um, even the Northwestern Pacific, and it's all just like uh, Super 8 type footage. No sound, but they have like a backing track of music to kind of take you through it. But just some of the, the imagery of these old diesels, you know, the SD40-2s when they're brand new. <laughs> Goodness, we, we hated them when we saw them, but now we miss them. Uh, but the, this video is really cool. It's uh, California Railroads in the 1980s by Sea Vision Production. And um, I, I'd, I'd recommend that as a view to anyone interested in that sort of subject. 